So welcome back to The Inside Story, the show where we host conversations exploring life's big questions, human endeavor, culture, ideas, and truth. You can follow online by all the usual channels at The Real Inside Story. And as many of you know, these conversations usually take place as live events in unique locations. But due to the nature of the world right now, we're bringing them to your homes. As per all our events, if you have any questions during the conversation, please feel free to uh, send them via email at info at insidestory.show or via the YouTube chat. Today on the show, I'm delighted to be talking with Cameron and Anna McLean, or to their own world, better known as the siblings. Cameron and Anna McLean are the world's first ever brother and sister team to ever row an ocean. Cameron, 33, and Anna, 25, achieved this by rowing more than 3,000 nautical miles across the Atlantic Ocean as part of the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, rowing to raise funds and awareness for gender equality and their chosen charity, UN Women. The race started on December the 12th, 2019, and they finished 43 days, 15 hours, and 22 minutes later on the 24th of January, 2020. In the same boat, I might add. Listeners can find out more at thesieblings.com or across all their channels at The Seedlings. Cameron and Anna, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank thanks. you, David. Yeah, thanks Hello. so much. We would have loved to be with you in person, but uh, second best, I guess, online. And um, it's so great at this stage. Obviously, we, we finished our row back in January, but just to be able to look back a few months down the line and try and remember some of those great times is a real privilege. So thanks so much. Fantastic. Well, now we're in the same boat. Um, as with all our guests, before we begin, I'd like to ask a fun question to kick us off and to tantalize our listeners. So as it's ladies first, Anna, what is the random fact about you that our listeners wouldn't know otherwise, having seen on your social media or, or on other channels? And we're going to come to you straight away after that, Cameron. So Anna, over to you. Um, gosh. Um, well, a random fact that happened about two minutes ago is uh, I bought my dad a soda stream for his birthday, which was last week, and he's been loving fizzy water. So I, as we were preparing and setting up for this, David, with you and everybody joining, I thought, as siblings do, I would play a little prank on my brother. And I said, Cameron, I've actually got some fizzy water for us. I put it out because it's a really hot day here in the UK. And I thought he would take a sip of this water as we were in the show. But um, unfortunately, he took it a bit before. And he said, Anna, what, what is this? But I thought... A nice GNT on a beautiful afternoon. So it's been spiked with gin. Yeah, <laughs> we, we are brother and sister. We do play pranks on each other, yeah. despite us still getting them wrong. Well, with the gin, with the gin, I'm expecting an interesting yes. conversation. Then I'm expecting an interesting conversation. Our listeners are in for a treat here um, today as we as we uh, converse over the next uh, hour and a bit. So, Cameron, to you, what's the uh, something that the listeners don't know, or maybe another prank that you want to share? Well, yeah, I mean, I had time to think about this answer now. Um, it was my birthday last week, and for my birthday, I was given a karaoke machine. And probably like most people watching, my initial reaction was like, what on earth is this? But I'm kind of at that age where, what do you get somebody who's 33? And so we've had a, we've had a bit of time to go on it, and mm -hmm. our go-to song is Islands in the Stream. And it's actually quite addictive. I, don't know, I didn't know karaoke could be so fun. So, fun. Mm -hmm. so um, 
got the lights too. The disco ball disco on the top. Ball. It's yeah. all about the lights. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, we'll we'll hear more. Uh, we'll hear a bit more about the music. I think later on in the show, where we hear about some of the motivation, maybe behind behind how you guys got uh, those three thousand miles across the Atlantic. It's going to be entertaining. But we're going to hear more about your entertainment, and I'm sure that the music aspect will come up. Maybe as a as a as a singing singing uh, karaoke, just with no one else hearing you. I guess this time. So <laughs> without without further ado. Um, on the show today, as I mentioned, we're going to be exploring all aspects of the challenge, the Atlantic Row, and the people behind the oars. We'll be exploring the build-up and the training, what it's like during the race, the siblings, the rivalry, the finale, the aims and the objectives of the challenge, how things have changed post the race, and finally, what is next um, for these two inspiring young people, Cameron and Anna. So as per all our events, as mentioned, if you have any questions during the conversation, please ask these either via email uh, at info at inside story show or via the YouTube live chat, which our team is monitoring. So guys, before we, just, just as we're kicking off, we're going to start off with talking a bit about the people behind the oars. Hope you enjoyed that, that pun there. But the, the people are the thing that we want to hear about really with these conversations. We want to understand and get to know the whys, the why nots, and a bit more about the people. So as we kick off, let's talk, let's start off by talking a bit about growing up, what it was like growing up, um, what kind of what did you guys get up to? Obviously, rowing and, and is a big aspect of what you're doing now, and being out in the outdoors and, and that adventure-seeking lifestyle. But growing up, what was it like for you guys? Well, we we actually grew up in the Middle East, so we had quite an international upbringing. Uh, had a lot of friends from the Commonwealth, Australia, Canada, um, New Zealand, and South Africa. So we were expatriates living in Saudi Arabia for about a decade, and then came back to England. Uh, we grew up in Gloucestershire, our, our home county, which uh, has really supported us through this. And yeah, I think a lot of people ask, um, you mentioned our ages, but a lot of people ask, are you twins? And there's actually a seven year difference between us. So I, I mean, I grew up as an only child for seven years, and then this beautiful baby girl came into the family. He says that on camera. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what's By the way, I can, I, can, I can hear the twang of the, of the Gloucestershire. I can, I can hear <laughs> a, an, an American Middle Eastern Gloucestershire twang. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out through the conversation. Yeah. And I should add, our, our mum is American. Our dad's English. So, the, you know, there is a bit of a, an American twist in there. We've always had the best of both worlds, um, like being able to go to the States, family holidays and stuff, and then also coming back home to, to Gloucestershire. We basically celebrate everything. Yeah. So we do 4th of July, we do Guy Fawkes Night, any excuse to have a bit of a barbecue and some fun or a hog roast. We're, and we we're go doing. to the extreme with every holiday as well. I remember moving house and the removal van was like, why do you have so many Christmas decorations? I was like, my mum's American. That's all I can say. <laughs> but. That's a that's a that's a really interesting aspect. And so, in terms of in terms of growing up, were you were you guys active? Did you do rowing from a young age, from the age of four, or or what were you what were you doing in those early years in the Middle East and, and America uh, and Gloucestershire? Yeah, well, in in the Middle East, it's mainly desert, so there wasn't much river rowing there. But it was when we moved back to Gloucestershire, and I was at school in Cheltenham, um, that it was the River Seven that I started to learn to row on. And really it was just a summer sport initially, 
because I was terrible at cricket. And then it turned into an all year sport. And I got quite good at school. Um, in fact, I was captain of the first eight team in my final year. I was selected to go to the Great Britain trials. Um, but it was in my, well, actually, just after that selection camp, pre-university, that I got glandular fever. And it absolutely ruined all of my rowing ambitions. And I tried to row at University Oxford Brooks, but I was so ill in my first year, I just couldn't get back into sport. So I, yeah. I was just sort of left with my degree and studying and um, left a bit empty, I think. So it wasn't really until 2015 when I was feeling fully back to health that I thought I need something to prove that I, I can fulfill those athletic ambitions. And in 2015, I swam the English Channel. So I did that in just under 15 hours. And that was when I felt kind of whole again. There was a, a piece that been knocks me back at a young age and that was fulfilled yeah and i well, don't know what about you Anna? well i don't know if any listeners or viewers have older siblings but it's really hard to keep up with something like this um so my whole life i've kind of always tried everything that cameron tries he'll come home and like play the guitar seamlessly and my mom listen to me play the guitar and it's just terrible and so if you have any siblings, you just tend to spend as much of your time trying to be like them, but also supporting them in their endeavors. So I remember most weekends I would just spend on the riverbank watching Cameron row. And rowing isn't the best spectator sport. <laughs> I mean, the bacon sandwiches are good, the teas and coffees are good, but sometimes it's just pouring with rain and you only see the crew pass for like, two seconds it's a split second and then they're gone um so i really just grew up supporting cameron in all of his endeavors and wanting to try them too and luckily um i tried rowing because i stopped just standing on the riverbank and thought i'm going to get myself into a boat so it was really cameron that inspired me to start rowing in the first place and i'm so grateful for it we actually shared a boathouse at school, which was the boys and the girls shared, so it was fun. Well, so you've got Cameron to blame for, for this <laughs> hell that he put you through um, yeah. for, three, for two months uh, over, over, over the new year. That's, uh, that's something you guys can remember, I can imagine. As a twin myself, yeah. uh, I, can, I can definitely uh, understand and imagine the rivalry and the, the determination of, of uh, not just obviously um, trying to compete with my, my sister, but also my twin <laughs> brother as well. So. It's been really interesting. Looking forward to hearing more about the, the kind of camaraderie during the race as well as it gets down, as we get, get down to business. But yeah, mo moving on from that, Cameron, you mentioned about the prior, well, we you mentioned about your prior experience regarding, you know, the swimming of the, of the channel. And, and obviously, Anna, you've talked about your rowing background as well. So maybe let's talk about some of the other experiences you've had. So you, you swam the channel. Did that kind of, was that kind of something like, You've done that. I now need something else to to go at. Uh, and so that's did that did that move then on to the to the Atlantic Challenge? And and for, for you, Anna, what was what was the kind of the equivalent of swimming the Channel for you? That that thing that really kind of um, tested the waters for you in terms of your adventurous uh, self. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm very spontaneous, um, and Cameron spent years like preparing for this Channel swim, and. I admire that, whereas we're very different in the sense that I'll see something and I'm like, I can do it. And you can't always do that. You have to prepare, you have to train. But um, 
I suppose the only adventurous and physical and mental challenge that I had done is uh, cycling Land's End to John O'Groats. And that was because I was at school or at university and my coach said, yeah, you've got two weeks off, but keep training, two weeks off rowing. But if you can keep moving, keep moving. So I called my friend. I was like, let's just cycle the length of the UK. And she was up for it. So we did that in our, in our rest period as such. Okay, so, you both, so, so, you, so Cameron worked the upper body uh, with the rowing and you, you worked the, the kind of legs. How long did that, did that take you, by the way? Was it a race that you did the John O'Groats to Land's End in or, or was it no, just so a regular it was, it was just the two of us, my friend and Charlotte, uh, my friend Charlotte and myself, and it was fully unsupported. So we took everything on our bikes and we just stopped at campsites along the way. It was 913 miles and it took us 12 days. So. A good effort, oh, well I would say. Good effort. Yeah. Couldn't have done it without them. Yeah, and you had some bad thunderstorms during that. Yeah. I think there was like there was a farmer who said, "Okay, you can spend yeah. the night in my barn," just because the tent wasn't even keeping the rain yeah. off. It was so torrential. Yeah. Um, so this is often about the journey and not just mm. finishing. And uh, I know with my channel swim, the the day was absolutely amazing. I was blessed with uh, awesome weather from sunset to uh, well, sunrise to sunset because I left about 7 a.m. in the morning and, and finished in the dark. Um, but it was that year and that build-up to actually going um, that you really have to dig deep and you have to know your why. Um, being in Gloucestershire, we're not really near the ocean, so it made it hard to train for our rowing, but also equally hard to train for swimming the channel. So I was getting up at about 4 in the morning to get down to Bournemouth for 8 a.m., in the water with some other swimmers and we'd swim for six seven hours non-stop and then we'd be back on the sunday six seven hours and you'd do what's called like a split channel swim so you don't quite do the full 14 15 hours but you do enough to build and condition your body to cope with the cold which is the primary factor because you have like no wetsuit and and then just to build that endurance like any endurance sport it just takes time to develop that he learned he a few lessons and one was you have to put what is it goose fat on your body yeah. but when do you put your goggles on goggles yeah what do you mean? i think he put his goggles on after he had completely greased his entire body up he puts them on and he's like oh dear i should really do my goggles first and then oh yeah because if you smear them you can't see <laughs> you anything can't see it's like looking through a jar of <laughs> yeah these yeah. things these things we learn as we as we uh, as we try these things, it's often often uh, war of attrition uh, in terms of getting to the other side. So how how far was that, Cameron? By the way, the the channel is that? I think I ended up swimming thirty six kilometers, something like that, because the, the tides take you north and south, and you, you swim sort of an S shape and eventually yeah. make it. But I was about four hours in complete pitch black and darkness, which was really surreal. Surreal because. Uh, yeah, you can't see anything other than just a few LED lights on the boat that you're trying to follow. Any um, jellyfish? Loads of jellyfish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah wow. it's well, no, it's interesting. Interesting. You mentioned that a friend of a friend of mine recently swam around the United Kingdom, which is a. Uh, uh, I don't know if you were aiming to do that in your warm up of swimming across the the, the channel, but it's um, the the stories told of, of the jellyfish and the animals. We'll, we'll probably hear more about what they were like in the Atlantic, but. They're pretty pretty raw, aren't they? Uh, even in the channel. Yeah. 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 
cool stuff. Well, moving from the channel swim and the, the kind of rowing around, uh, sorry, swimming, sorry, cycling down the UK, certainly didn't swim down. <laughs> let's move, let's move on to talking a bit more about the aims of, of the, of the Atlantic swim, sorry, the Atlantic row personally for you guys. And as a team, obviously both of you are very independent characters as brother and sister, but I can imagine that you both had different aims for, for, for wanting to row across the Atlantic and also obviously as a team had a, had a joint aim as well. So maybe we could just talk a bit about that now, um, either of you and then, and then maybe the team one afterwards. Yeah, so um, I suppose as well, how do you even get an idea like rowing across an ocean? Um, and I had actually read a book on it at school and it was by Roz Savage and she was the first female to row across the Atlantic solo. And I remember reading this book, highlighting it, annotating it, and Karen had just swum across the channel. I was like, there's no better person to ask than my brother to do it. Like, he obviously loves water, he loves adventure. And at that time, he, he said yes, and I'm so grateful he did. But we had no aims. It was just, we wa I want to row across the Atlantic. Let's do it together. But how do we do it? Who do we do it for? We really had no idea of what our goal was and how we hone in the overall objective into like smaller things that we can actually achieve. Um, and the row is very commonly known to be like five guy crews and, you know, four army men and northern lads and stuff. And no brotherhood and sister had ever done it before. So at the core, I think reverting it back, we wanted to be competitive, but at the same time, we knew that no matter what position we came in the race, we would achieve a world record and that world first of being the first ever brother and sister to do something like this. So that ended up being our aim was to get there and, and get that record no matter what, what we encountered and what obstacles we faced during, during the crossing and not just the crossing, the entire two years of leading up to that crossing, we faced a lot of obstacles, but that was the one goal that we always had in the back of our minds. Amazing. Yeah, I think the, the one aim was to succeed, to and, succeed. Su and survive and to, su to succeed at something like this, um, whether it's a channel swim or an Atlantic row, it's, um, I think it takes a little bit of luck. <laughs> But um, I'm also a great believer in grit, and there's a great book by Angela Duckworth called Grit, where she talks about interest, practice, perseverance, and hope. Those are the four areas of her model to achieving grit. And we were certainly interested in rowing the Atlantic. Anna was inspired by the book Roth Savage wrote, uh, and then she talked to me about it. I was suddenly interested. But I think things got easier for us when we stopped making it about ourselves and making it about other people. And what I mean by that is um, we had a chosen charity, UN Women UK. We wanted to financially support them, but also raise awareness about the importance of their work. And once we had that kind of as a, a backbone to our campaign, things got a bit easier. We started then going to schools and talking to children and just seeing their reactions and their eyes light up like, wow, you're really going to go that distance. They were learning about the Canary Islands, where we left from, and the Caribbean, where we arrived, and the Atlantic Ocean and the vastness of it, and just sort of planting dreams in their minds at a young age. 
then it, it got easier again. And from there, kind of over the course of two years, the campaign grew and we eventually made the start line. Uh, but you, we definitely needed that practice and the perseverance mm. and the hope that we would actually make it. So I'm, I'm a great believer in that model of Angela Chuckworth. Exactly. So would you guys say that, what, what, was the, what was the kind of date, Anna, that it was kind of, it came into your mind? What was the, do you, do you remember? Do you remember that for yourself? And then you went, actually, should I suggest this to my brother or, or what? <laughs> so I suppose only recently since we've been clearing out at home that I can give you a date. And that's because Cameron found my Christmas list uh, from 2012, I think it was, uh, which said Rose Savage book rowing the Atlantic. So, I mean, I must've got it for that Christmas and then told all my friends I was going to do it and then here we are today so it's a seven-year process eight-year process in the making. I actually also found the application form for the race of that <laughs> year and it was completed we just we just never sent it off and for me that just proves that the time wasn't right it wasn't until Anna was at <laughs> university in America for a number of years but then she came back to the UK we were both living in London and that proximity allowed us to develop the campaign and, and we just, we knew right then, okay, we were actually neighbours in uh, Victoria, in London. And yeah, we started meeting at the, the pub. It was once a week initially. Yeah, once a week. And then we were like, things aren't going fast enough. And then it was, it ended up being every night every we were working on it. So, but yeah, that being proximate definitely was a catalyst mm -hmm. to us actually getting started and moving things forward properly. So it just shows, I think, like, like many of these, Kind of endurance races although it's a it's a it's a what 43 day project may may seem quite a a short thing in the big scheme of life but in terms of the planning that, that has gone into this thing is it what you're saying it was a two-year a two-year build-up lead time essentially yeah. yeah i'd say two full years yeah. but maybe even further longer than that and you have to put a lot on hold yeah. um Everything on hold. Yeah, everything on hold. No, no holidays. No weddings. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, but I should add, even though we crossed in 43 days, mm. this was way faster than we ever expected. We had actually <laughs> taken 70 days worth of food. Uh, we had planned to get across in 60 days was our goal. So mm. to be almost like two, two weeks faster than expected, was was huge for us and actually around day 30 out in the ocean things started to go a bit you know a bit bad things start to wear out the ocean takes its toll things rust relationships break down a little bit the boredom kicks in yeah so well, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna hear more about that in a bit when we move on to the race itself but before we before we do let's just wrap up um some of these things just preliminary bits about the race so We've talked about why the challenge to row the Atlantic, that's kind of come from the book and then, and then the reasons behind it. In terms of the history of the race, can you tell us a bit about the history of the race, the Talisco Whiskey Challenge, Atlantic Challenge? Are there any, was there anything about it, anything that you'd heard historically wise that you wanted to go, right, let's do that? I think we, we meet, um, like Cameron said, I, he found the application from 2012 that I had filled out. But back then, it wasn't commonly known at all that people had rode across the Atlantic. And so now it's sponsored by Talisker Whiskey, and it's part of Atlantic campaigns. And it's become more of, more of a competitive race. It's not just rowing independently and getting in a boat and going. 
you actually have to prepare, you have to show your confidence and your capabilities and your competence and that you have done those preparations because like Cameron mentioned earlier, it's a survival exercise. So um, the race history has really formed to now a place where you're going, but you're going because you are ready to go. Uh, not everybody makes it even still today. Um, there's always that risk of death as well, but you're going and I think that safety aspect as well for your family members at home and all of your support crew on land is really important, but it's an amazing camaraderie and the ocean rowing community, the people that you meet just, they have gone on to do great adventures, rowed multiple oceans. It's just, you're surrounded by like-minded people. So it's amazing. Definitely pre-race, the benefit of going as part of the Atlantic campaigns, uh, Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, was that they implement a lot of safety factors. And it gave us that peace mm -hmm. of mind that we, we had everything we needed in case we got into a hairy situation. We had all our emergency beacons, we had personal locator beacons, an EPIRB on the boat, and all these satellite devices that we could trigger an alarm off. Not that rescue's anywhere nearby, it could take two years to get, oh, not two days to get picked up. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we had them on board and it gave us confidence going into the row that we had all the right bits of gear in place. Um, but actually, during the race, the benefit we found was we had this, you know, we, we just had an awareness. You couldn't see any crews after two hours of leaving La Gomera. You couldn't see any other boats. There's nothing but water. But in the back of our minds, we knew there were other people in a similar position to us. And it kind of, it does make you a laugh. There is an irony just being on a tiny little ocean rowing boat thinking nothing but oars is going to get me across this vast ocean. Um, and, it, and it helped drive our competitive spirit and propelled us a bit faster, I think. So two benefits there, really. Safety and speed. That's awesome, guys. That's awesome. Well, as we, as we move on, let's chat briefly about the, the charity, the organisation, the UN Women, which is who you were, you were rowing for. Before we move on to the actual race, let's talk a bit about the charity. So how did you first interact with, with the UN Women and, and how, what was the partnership like throughout the, you know, the build-up during the race and then, and then how's it been afterwards? Yeah, so UN Women are the only organization dedicated to achieving women's rights on a global scale, so across every country in the world. And um, the Sustainable Development Goal number six, uh, gender equality, number five, gender equality, is actually what UN Women are striving to achieve day in and day out. And it's so hard to pick a charity. And some crews, they pick multiple charities. And that was, it was a long process. And um, I remember actually, we wanted to align to this goal of gender equality. And that's because in our campaign, we were the first ever brother and sister. So that's why we launched hashtag same boat. And that campaign hashtag same boat is really to bring men and women into the same boat and you achieve greater things and better things when men and women work together and work together as equal partners and that's exactly what UN women are striving for day in and day out. Um, I actually work in technology and I just remember one study that I read um, from UN women and it was this girl who was actually a refugee and she had moved to um, Malaysia and all of her family were still in Malaysia. She then moved to Norway and she was sending money back home 
to Malaysia and all of the money was just going to all of the men and nobody, she couldn't track anything. So they actually started like a Bitcoin chain and then everyone who was donating to this lady's like GoFundMe and her Bitcoin, they could see, okay, I'm donating 10 pounds and it's going to groceries. I'm donating 10 pounds and it's going to your education. So all of this money now that she sends back to Malaysia, they know exactly where it's going. And I just remember reading that and resonating with it so well because it's so forthcoming. I mean, everyone remembers the whole Bitcoin phase. And that's just one example of something completely life-changing that UN women have done and formed and been able to fund and populate for this girl and not just this girl, but that entire community in, in Malaysia. So they've done a lot and we're glad that hashtag same boat has been able to uh, support that. Yeah. And like Anna said um, earlier, historically, the rowing race has just been, you know, ex-military men or predominantly male rowers going across the ocean. And even last year when we raced, there were 108 rowers and only 15 were female. And we thought, well, you know, what's different about our boat? And we were the only boat in the race that brought both genders into the same boat. And so we wanted to choose a charity that aligned with our goal of proving that there is power in gender diversity. So we chose UN Women UK, um, who put the money towards inspiring women in education, politics and entrepreneurship, so we can have this gender parity in the future. That's amazing. So just, just a, a question for our listeners, uh, Cameron, is there any reason why there are so many, well, there are so many boats without kind of men and women both in is there a reason why it's not kind of two men two women or is it just been seen in the past as as just a very man manly kind of race then i guess well i would say if you want to go fast uh we actually came third out of seven boats in the pairs category we beat wow. uh, a number of crews who were all men <laughs> so i don't know why there aren't more boats that are sort of uh mixed gendered yeah. in the race um especially with the campaigning side of things. Yeah. We, we both brought different ideas and mm -hmm. um, we work quite differently as individuals as well. So, but we brought the strength from both genders mm -hmm. to create a powerful campaign. Mm -hmm. And that's what we wanted to prove. No, I think that's fantastic. And just for those who are, for those of you who are just joining us now, today on the show, I'm delighted to be talking with Cameron and Anna McLean, or to their own world, better known as the Seedlings. The brother and sister pair who re recently completed the roughest and toughest race in rowing, the Talisker Atlantic Challenge, raising funds and awareness for gender equality and the UN women. Um, so while we're here, guys, we're going to move on to our next section, next section of this conversation. We've talked about the charity. We've talked about the people behind the oars, a bit of history around the race. But now I want to focus a bit more on the build-up, some of the training. We're going to look at different aspects of that. So while, why don't we kick off with... The training we talked about it being two years in the making this this event what did the training look like where was it when did it take place and what were some of the sacrifices you had to make <laughs> well, um, i'm sure you'll yeah. be able to cover that in about 10 seconds you know so yeah well i mean uh, the key thing you need is a boat so we had to um we had to find our boat first of all so we there are a number there was a couple of boat builders in the uk um, known for making ocean rowing boats. We decided on a company called Rannick, who are based in Burnham on Crouch in Essex. 
And so they built our boat, which is a pairs boat. It's called a Rannick R25. And we named her Lily, Lily in the end, after the song Lily the Pink. And then a lot of other lilies seem to follow suit. And it all kind of <laughs> seemed to be uh, quite Super meant to be, yeah. So, so Lily was our boat. Um, and then like, cause we were planning on spending 60 days at sea. We had to spend a lot of time with Lily, yeah. just packing everything and. Yeah, and it's not just like physical training. I mean, this boat is going to be and was our home for 60 days. So we, what we were thinking was going to be 60 days. And you have to know, like, imagine if you were walking downstairs, sleepwalking, but where the fridge is and where the water is and filling up a cup, but without spilling it everywhere and in the darkness. It's kind of like that, our boat. We had to know everything inside and out as if we could find something completely blindfolded or if we came into an accident. So training wise, I mean, there was everything from VHF radio skills, sea survival skills, if something did happen, how to deploy a life raft, hoping. I just remember in the training sitting in this life raft and it was a four person's life raft. And there was just the two of us in there, but still I was like, I hate this in the swimming pool, let alone in the middle of the sea, not knowing what's beneath you or where you are from help. And um, like navigation skills, I mean, you have to head west, but when the winds and the tides and the currents are all against you, how do you know whether it's time to deploy your anchor or your parachute anchor or not? So just so many skills required to do it rather than just physical necessarily. Yeah, we actually, we made all our own water. So we desalinated the ocean water, um, powered by two solar panels on our boat, which charged two lead acid batteries. And we went on a water maker course down in Western Supermare to understand <laughs> how to strip the water maker and rebuild it. But there's a difference learning the water maker on a nice workbench mm. uh, in, a, in an office with all the tools you have, compared to out in the ocean where you have access to a panel about that wide, only yeah. one screwdriver because you have to limit the amount of weight you actually take you have to say what's essential and what's not essential but a lot of people were asking us oh what's your rowing machine time how long do you spend on the erg you know how, how heavy weights are you lifting but what it actually came down to was knowing our systems doing our drills that practice in angela duckworth's grit model you know, just practicing things so when we were under duress when we were highly stressed when we were fatigued when we were blind, because it was black as anything at night, we could still use the skills and do the things we needed to do to survive. So a lot of like rope work and mm. tying knots, blindfolded. <laughs> yeah. Just do you know to, how to do a bowling yet? Uh, well, I still don't know how to do a bowling. I used to always say, Anna, please leave, 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 leave Anna. And that, that comes, that's beautifully onto the next, the, one of the questions I, we've just had come in from one of our, uh, one of our listeners is, surely, surely just one of you needs to know about about you know making the water or doing the ropes is it something that you both it was something was it something that was essential that you both needed to know absolutely yeah, yeah. if um say we had capsized we turned and cameron got knocked out in the cabin something had fallen on him anything can happen cameron could be unconscious or i could be unconscious and just making sure that you knew and everything just as well as each other and it, it brought trust in, in our boat. I remember for the longest time I was asking Karen, oh, so what, what do we do if there's a capsize? 
and he would just go through the drills again and again and again with me uh, to the point where we would be arguing because we'd gone through them so many times but it's necessary that you both are up to up to the standard to to be trusted because hmm. in a capsize yeah. one person might be in the cabin and then the other person on deck mm -hmm. so the person on deck's thrown into the water and then the one left in the cabin has no idea what's happened in terms because they, they, they may be asleep they may be asleep not mine they i mean yeah you're asleep in the cabin and then you the boat rolls over and it's designed to self right but you're kind of disorientated in the cabin and you go wow did, did she actually manage to climb back in the boat and you're unable to open the hatch because if you're still inverted then you'll flood the hatch and let loads of water in so we came up with like a little knocking system and we would you know a lot of shouting and communication is key in these situations and fortunately we managed to keep sort of our bow uh, aligned with the waves so we, we only had a few knockdowns and never fully inverted when we were out there but so you, never, was... you never capsized you never capsized fully on, no, the, on the boat that was there was a lot of luck lot involved of it, yeah. with that there were some close moments but a lot of also quick reaction time to get yeah. to the other side of the boat mm -hmm. and balance it you know yeah. go okay we're about to roll jump and but at night time it's much harder you can't see where the waves are coming from so so for, for the people listening in Cameron you mentioned about just moving over to the other side of the boat does that obviously most people don't know how heavy one of these boats is obviously there's the four mans and the, the the larger boats are I guess different weights categories does does moving yeah. just to one side is that going to make a huge amount of difference then is that does that balance you out yeah it does because it, it shifts like the center of gravity and the, and the balance of the boat and the boat is only um two two meters two and a half meters wide so it's, um, it's not that wide at all. Uh, in terms of overall gross weight, uh, the boat when fully laden was about three quarters of a ton. So uh, we were blessed with high seas where we had massive rolling waves and we were holding on for dear life, but we were going quite quickly on those days doing, I think our best day was like 90 miles, 90 nautical miles. And then we also had some really calm conditions where you're pulling all that weight through the water um, but in terms of uh, the skills and whether both people should know what to do, I think it was important from a confidence point of view for both of us to have the skills. Um, because Anna even went out for a row by herself during training and she did everything, you know, dropping the anchor to using all the electrical systems, charging everything, just to say, well, I can do it by myself. So, you know, we don't know. Cameron could get afraid 500 miles out at sea and he could want to leave and call for rescue and what happens then? So we did a lot of what ifs, you know, if Cameron mm -hmm. leaves the boat, am I gonna continue? Well, if I've done a practice row and I know everything, then I can continue and the campaign can still keep going. Fortunately, yeah. we didn't have that, but. It was more fun with him, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll hear more about that in a second. But the, one, of the, one of the interesting things I often uh, talk to people about when we, we talk about these long endurance campaigns and, and adventure activities, certainly, when we talk about mountaineering or long endurance, you know, rows, it's so important to know that the person in the boat that you're going to be with for an extended period of time, you can fully trust, you know them really well. And I mean, one person said to me once that if you, if, if the person, if you don't get along with them at altitude, then uh, what are you, you're not going to get along with them at 20, 28,000, 30,000 feet. So it's so, it's so important to be, you know, knowing people really well. And it, it, I guess that's a testament to, to you being a brother and sister. And we're going to hear more about some of that relationship um, later on in the conversation. But one of the things I, I mentioned just before that I'd love to hear a bit more about is you mentioned sacrifices, Anna. 
and, and not being able to go to weddings and, and other things. What were, what were some of the sacrifices you guys kind of put to one side in that two years and build up to the, the row? Gosh, so in the build up to the row, there's so much that you have to do. Um, and it's not just buying a boat and training in that boat, but it's also um, like building a website, branding your website, marketing your website, it's writing sponsorship contracts, everything. You become every profession under the sun. I think Cameron was the website designer. We ended up being lawyers. Like you name a profession, we're probably now it. Um, so, yeah. and one of those things was um, sponsorship. It was so, so tough and grueling trying to reach out to people who you want to believe in something that you believe in yourself so, so much. And for us, that was the row. That was the faith that we were going to achieve it. And also um, our cause, UN Women. Mm. And I remember one of the biggest sacrifices was, it, it was in London and I said to my, one of my best friends, I was like, yeah, I'll host your birthday party. I had, it was Cameron's rooftop. And I said, yeah, she really wanted her birthday party on this rooftop in London. I said, yeah, don't worry, I'll host it. This was about six months before we were due to leave. So you'd think you'd have enough time to just spend two hours with your friends, you know, having some fun in the sunshine in London. But unfortunately, um, I spent that two hours of her birthday party in my kitchen downstairs writing a sponsorship contract and a sponsorship proposal, just messaging people. And I, it's one of the biggest sacrifices for me because you want to be with the people you love so much but at the same time it's amazing now looking back and being so grateful for those people who said it's okay if you have to do this go and do it because you're still still my friend um and those are the people who are going to stick with you for your life really um and believe in something just as much as you do mm. and last year for me was was so stressful because where well, you have your departure date set in stone and you always work backwards from there and you come up with a list of priorities and these shift depending on on the moment and new things that arise problems and whatnot but i um people might not know but i was actually at flight school last year i'm training to become a commercial pilot and so i was um at theoretical ground school which I, I don't encourage anyone to do. It's the worst thing ever. You're in the classroom from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Then you get two hours extra of online training, which they check you're actually online and doing because they've got all the systems to do that. So we have a limited and finite amount of time and energy to do everything we need to do. And in ground school, we had no holiday for seven months other than this one week break. And you only got the one week break if you <laughs> passed your exams. So your exam, you have 14 exams, they're split into two halves, seven in the first semester and seven in the next. And I, there was that added pressure, not only to pass everything first time so I could hopefully get a good job, but also so I could get this one week holiday to go rowing with my sister mm -hmm. out in Essex in the North Sea and do a five day expedition training row. And that was our only opportunity. Yeah because we had to ship our boat about two months before actually leaving the Canary Islands. So our on-water time was completely limited. Um, I, I remember finishing this row, this five days in the North Sea, and we've launched our, our boat back onto the trailer. Everything's ready to go. We're sitting in the car, the boat towing behind us, and Cameron's at the steering wheel, and he's like, I'm just, I'm just gonna have five minutes 
two hours later, he's just still there with his head on the steering wheel, absolutely exhausted. So I think, yeah, you were more tired going back to flight school than you could have been. Oh, yeah, well, I got back on the Monday after a week off, and one girl had been to Portugal, and another guy had been to New York. Uh, they all had really nice tans, and I just had a little bit of stubble. I hadn't had time to shave or anything. Blistered hands. Yeah, my hands were so raw, bags under the eyes, probably still smelling a little bit, because yeah. it's just not, not very clean living on a tiny boat. There's no shower or toilet, proper toilet facilities. And so, yeah, just sat there going, wow, what a week. That was a bit of a whirlwind. And we were trying to test our system, which was two hours on, two hours off, alternating. Um, but we found during training we rode together a bit more uh, than on the actual road. Wow. Okay, so we've talked sacrifices. Let's, let's talk a bit now about the, um, the, the family. You're part of a family, obviously, and, and the risk involved in, in rowing across the Atlantic. I mean, I haven't done the statistics i haven't done the percentage rate of people who i mean has has anyone died uh, in, in this attempt of, of of doing the the atlantic and what was the risk involved um for you guys in terms of i guess we all have relationships that we're that are going on in our lives and, and families obviously our closest uh, relationship in many ways to many people and so i guess my, my question would be what did your family think about it and what were the risks involved that, that you guys had to kind of get get real with so as, as part of the race you have to um you have to sign this form at the beginning so you're in la gomera and it's about a week before you leave and on the form it says like are you willing to risk and on it it has like death of course a huge one and then there's also obviously the risk of colliding with another boat there's risk of big waves and capsizing there's risk of injury like serious illness but death is probably that biggest one for most people. But what wasn't on that form, and I think the biggest risk for us being a family is the risk of exactly that, tearing our family apart and breaking that relationship that we have as a brother and sister and also disappointing to some extent um, our, our parents, our mum and dad, who have invested so much of their love and their time and financially uh, supported as well, of course. Um, there's always that risk of, of losing that relationship and breaking our family to, to pieces. It's like anything, uh, I can relate this, this row and this whole campaign to maybe starting your own business. And if you start your own business, like you have to find investors to actually build that from the onset. And with that comes a lot of risk and a lot of sacrifice. And this was exactly the same. You're driving people to invest in, in what you believe in so much. Uh, but for us, family was, was at the core of that. And so we quite early on identified those risks. And the way we overcame it was by setting our goals and a, and a hierarchy for our goals. Mm -hmm. So we always thought it's easier to do these things with a nice cup of tea in hand on stable ground um, when everyone's fully fed and happy and had a good night's sleep rather than when you're out in the middle of the ocean going, oh, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. So we set our hierarchy of goals uh, before leaving. And goal number one was always safety first. You know, we didn't want to leave our parents with only one child remaining. Um, we didn't want to leave them um you know feeling uh lost or 
uncertain about how we were doing out there. So our, our goal was safety first, and we always agreed that we would look after one each one look after each other. Because um, one of the things is when you're swimming, because we had to jump in the water and clean the boat, it's sometimes quite hard when you're feeling a bit weak to get yourself back in the boat. So you've got to you have one person on board looking after the other one, give them a hand, make sure they can get back in. So safety first. The second thing was speed. You know, if we could reduce our weight and make the boat go a bit faster, um, it is a race at the end of the day. And yeah, so we had that hierarchy of goals and overcame those risks. And just to stay, stay brother and sister, so often crews get to Antigua and to the other side, never speaking again. Um, whether they're siblings, even friends have been known, have known to fallen out at sea. And I remember speaking to Kelda Wood, she was one of the mental health coaches as part of the race, and she had rode the Atlantic previously. And she said, you are going to have some really, really bad days. You're going to have days where you just want to get your oar and smack it in the water and just break it. And trust me, we had those days as well. And she said, it's okay to, to want to rage and be like that because there's nobody around. But remember that you're with somebody and let that person do whatever they need to do, but don't take it out on them. Take it out on however else you need to take it out. And so if it's an object, whatever it is, do that um, and try and stay positive and remember that at the core, you are siblings and that's more um, impactful than anything else and more important than anything else. Um, I ended up writing a contract as part of my law skills here um, to Cameron. And I remember putting a, a chart on it, a graph. And I said, I drew a straight line and I was like, not reality. And then I drew the line that everyone's seen, which has waves like this. And I was like, our journey. And I pointed to it. But all of those obstacles we could overcome. And I even taped on the, the little contract for him, and his, his business card. And I said, please sign here that we will do this no matter what. And, and we did. So on, on, the note, on the note of, of the ore, Anna, you mentioned <laughs> about the ore. Where, do, do you guys, do, do you only take two oars with you? And if, if one, or, or, or four oars, sorry, with you? And, and if, if, if one of them breaks, is that, is that the end? Like what's, what's the... What's so the we, had, we had three pairs of oars. We could have taken four pairs, but that, I think that's a bit extreme. And in fact, in the first three days, I think yeah. on the third day, we broke one of the oars. Mm -hmm. And I said to Anna, gosh, if we go through oars at this rate. We're not, not because of rage. We're not, no, no. That was a, <laughs> good to, cla good to clarify that. Three yeah. days in and, and Anna was ready to <laughs> end her contract. <laughs> No, this massive wave came. Actually, I was rowing and I felt so guilty as well. I felt like, oh, I've broken an oar and now we're carrying that. And, um, so we had three pairs of oars and it's, uh, you know, we, we had planned to row two hours on, two hours off. And we actually did this consistently for a month. So we were only really using one pair at a time. And Anna and I would use the same pair and just swap the seat. And that was it. But as we got closer to Antigua and we started to race a bit more, we were rowing together a lot more and we had a new plan, which was zero sleep and just row, 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 which we did for about three days until we got burnout <laughs> and things got a bit tense then. Um, but it was always, if we, if we did go through oars, worst case, you're down to a pair of oars and it's just one person rowing. Uh, so you'd have to break quite a few oars to get to that point. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, guys. So just just wrapping up the, the aspect about the family, were your family fully on board then and, you, and your friends once you'd made the decision? Was there any was there any aspects that they were like, well, we're a bit cautious about this or we're, we're wondering about this, you know, your career maybe or, you know, could this be too risky? Was there any moment that you kind of that there was any wavering? I, I don't like to say mum wasn't supportive, <laughs> but she was more a silent supporter. She didn't really vocalise and, and show. She wasn't there at the front waving a flag or anything. We like to think she, that in the early stages she was in denial. In den totally in denial. Yeah. yeah. And we'd be like, mum, we're going to row the Atlantic. And she'd be like, yeah. oh, what, what do you want for dinner? She'd be like, mum, we just had business cards made. Oh, oh, okay. oh that's lovely. What are you doing next weekend? <laughs> yeah, just like completely avoided the subject at all whereas our, our dad was a, a more obvious supporter yeah. and, and he was more actively involved and he acted he actually ended up being um yeah. you know our land manager while we were at sea mm -hmm. and coordinating a few bits and, and getting things sorted and mm -hmm. was quite active on the communication side of things as well he well, was so more, of a, more, more of a silent partner than like in a business a silent partner who's that you know you know they're there but um they, they don't vocalize every step of the way yeah dad was definitely there every step of the way as often as he could be um but as part of the race you have to have an inspection about five months before you leave and five months is not a long time really so we went to our inspection we left i think at an ungodly hour about three o'clock in the morning and our trailer lights weren't working and so dad comes out and he's helping us fix our trailer lights at three o'clock in the morning. So he was honestly there at every stage of the way. And we get to our inspection and the crew next to us starts unpacking their boat to lay everything out. They have everything. And this is all part of the preparation. And dad's there and he's like, okay, well, come on, come on, children, start unpacking your boat. And we're like okay well here's the jet boil which is the little cooker that you use to cook your food and um we'd won that in a competition <laughs> we had our boat which we bought and we thought because we have a boat we have everything and that was it that's all we had and then maybe some water rations which the other crew next to us was throwing onto our side to make it look like we had more stuff and after that dad was like get your act together what have you been doing for the past year and a half and what we had been doing was focusing all of our efforts on sponsorship on driving campaigns on trying to get people to invest and believe in us on i don't know proposals on webinars on just fundraising events all of that that we hadn't even thought about what we were going to be living in at sea at all and after that the inspector, um, Ian Couch, who we were a little nervous and untouchy with at first, for obvious reasons, we were a little afraid of him, but now I can say he is definitely a dear friend of both of us. Um, he was there the whole way across the Atlantic, but following that inspection, he said some crews will be cut from this year's race. Mm. And what do you do when you get told that perhaps you're going to be the crew that's been cut? you've shown up on the day and you have, you have nothing to show because all of your efforts have been put in, in the wrong place. And I think that was a huge turning point in our campaign uh, for us to really know where we should be putting our effort. And also when our dad came on board was at that point and he was just helping us day in, day out. Uh, and we couldn't have done it 
have done it without him. And Cameron said earlier, he was at flight school for that whole time. I was managing a full-time job at the same time. So just having that extra support was really what we needed. So I think for those who are, for those who just joined, let's, let's make, let's have no illusion here that this is just a, a 43 day row or for some people longer, <laughs> some people shorter. This is a, a compilation of two to three years preparation with multiple people involved. And so it really is that, that the phrase and, and the cheesy phrase that we often use, teamwork make the, makes the dream work, clearly is, a, is something that is a reality uh, in, in this mm-hmm. setting and in many others I can imagine. So let's, let's be known with illusion um, to all our listeners that this is something that really is a, a long game. This campaign is something where people have to take on multi-skilled areas of, of project management. And it's it is fascinating hearing all these different areas, guys. So we're going to move we're going to move now onto kind of four key areas of 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 understanding of this race and, and things I've kind of broken down in the, the physical, the mental, the technical, and I guess the external factors as well. These factors for, for you guys, if if we were to if we were to look at breaking down that those four areas into percentages of of the race, I wonder I wonder you know where they they would end up for you guys. Maybe maybe you'd have different viewpoints on that. Or maybe you've had 43 days to discuss the percentages uh, ratio already. <laughs> so I just wonder the those factors, the physical, the training that we've talked about, the mental, the mental training, the technical ability, the know-how of of ropes and 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 uh, crossing the the channel as you've done, Cameron, and then also the external factors. I can imagine we're going to hear more about when we talk about the race specifically in terms of the you know whether it's the the, the weather or the animals, etc. So for you guys, what was it? What, what kind of percentages split was that, do you think? I would say 50% mental, 30% technical, and 10% the other two. Uh, <laughs> if that adds up to 100, no, it does. Uh, so yeah, 30% uh, technical, 10% physical, and um, 10% external as well. I mean, external, yeah, external and physical, I'd say, are, are probably equal, equal value. 30% technical, 50% mental. Um, because you know, it's, it's a long distance, so you, you don't need to be a huge person. You don't, there's no um, uh, correct physique to look like an ocean rower. You just literally have to take constant strokes and keep going. Um, the, the technical side of things uh, are, are more important, I'd say, than the, uh, the external. The external just happens. It's, it's out of your control. And, that, and that's why it's more mental than anything. Um, it's overcoming the dark nights. It's overcoming the, the agoraphobia, the fear of like nothing being around, that you are the doctor on board, you're the engineer on board when things go wrong. Yeah, it's, it's up to you to survive. So once you've got your head sorted and then you've got the technical skills, I think that the rest kind of follows suit. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. I would probably add more weight onto the external factors um, only because when the winds are going the right way, it's great. You have a great day, you go quick, morale is high, and that just boosts you even more to keep going. When you're having a slow day, like lugging three quarters of a ton through the water, it's, it's miserable. You're in the boiling heat, you have no shade whatsoever, the sun is just beating down on you. It's, you want to jump in the water, but at the same time, it's more effort to do that because then you're covered in just salt water and 
oh, just everything feels so uncomfortable. But um, I would put a little more weight on the external factors because that then contributes as well to your mental state. Um, but most of the weight, definitely on what, what's up here. The, the external factors, though, you, you can't control them. Yeah. They can either assist you or hinder you. Mm. And you have an idea of what to expect from like historical data, the predicted winds. And we did what's called the trade wind route. So we went during a time, we went, well, we left early December and finished the end of January. And a lot of people were saying, gosh, is it not going to be cold then? Well, actually, we're at the lower latitudes, closer to the equator. The water temperature in La Gomera was about 18 degrees Celsius uh, when we left. And then as we got closer to the Caribbean, um, it, it ended up being scorching hot in the cabin. You, it was like a sweat box. You couldn't even, couldn't even sit in there. We preferred just to be on deck with a towel and a, and a little blanket over us or a sheet. So, um, yeah, the, the trade wind route was designed so that we'd have the majority, 80% of the time, the winds should be behind us. But, of course, you had those occasions where you didn't make any grounds, you were slower than expected, or that a lot of people also think of waves as they see at the ocean or the seaside, um, where they just come and they roll and they hit the shore and they're from one direction. But out in the middle of the ocean, you have your primary swell and your secondary swell. So often we'd have our primary swell coming from the east assisting us, but then from a lot of activity and energy in the North Atlantic, this secondary swell was being pushed down. And occasionally those waves just could be enormous and rogue out of nowhere from the wrong direction. And you'd see them coming like a few hundred yards off. And then I'd shout like brace and Anna would hold on, <laughs> the boat would rock. But um, definitely 50% mental because you're, you're never stationary. You're always moving, whatever you do, whether you're eating, whether you're going to the loo, whether you're trying to sleep, there's just this constant movement. And if you've you know, ever been at the back of a bus on a long bus journey, it's kind of like that. It does, it gets a bit nauseous. And fortunately, I wasn't seasick. I took all the medicine and patches and, and it seemed to work. Whereas Anna suffered for at least the first five days. Yeah. Um, throwing up over the side yeah which... well well we're gonna we're gonna hear more about this about some of the sicknesses some of the highs and lows literally um during the <laughs> during the next hour that we're going to converse but for now um if you're just joining us now today on the show as as i said before i'm delighted to be talking with cameron and anna mclean uh, or to their own world better known as the seedlings brother and sister pair who recently completed the roughest and toughest race in rowing the talisker atlantic whiskey challenge raising funds and awareness for gender equality and the UN Women uh, charity. So as we move on to our next phase of the, uh, of the conversation, we're going to now talk about the race. We'll talk about the race aspect. This is what everyone's wanted to hear about. And um, we're talking here about a, an event that took place, finished in, in, uh, in January, uh, January the 24th in 2020. It was a 43-day race. Um, and we're now going to talk a bit more about that. So Cameron and Anna, maybe talk to us a bit about the geography where you started, where you finished, and then let's talk about the phases. If you guys had any strategic phases of of kind of um, of, of kind of the race and what you're aiming for. Yeah. So the race sets off, uh, like you said, David, in December uh, each year. It actually started as a biannual um, event, but now it does run annually. So it leaves from La Gomera, which is in the Canary Islands and beautiful part of the world, I can say, especially for winter and some sun, gorgeous. 
Um, and then it's 3,000 miles across the trade wind route, so the South Atlantic uh, towards Antigua, and English Harbour is actually where you enter into. And we actually plotted it out, our journey. Um, we broke it down into every line of longitude. And so I can't remember how many we had, maybe Five. eight, yeah, how many waypoints? But it ten. was every, yeah, we had about 10 waypoints, I mm. suppose. And it was every, on average, 300 nautical miles between those. Mm. And I think maybe this was from your flying training or something, but we had a word for each of those waypoints. And it's weird because it's not often on land that you really think of your life in five days, really, or in 300 mile increments. Um, but that's really how we thought of thought of life. And we planned every two hours, we would just change our rhythm and routine. But really, we aimed for those that 300 miles on average um, across the Atlantic all the way. Yeah, there was there was no way we were going to leave La Gomera and go, are, you like, are we at Antigua yet? <laughs> there, there have been crews known to do just block one waypoint in Antigua. Mm -hmm. But for us, you know, it just being such a long journey, we had to segment it up. And so we thought, well, how's the world segmented? Well, it's in lines of longitude that run from north to south. And we looked at those and you know, we had 10 waypoints going across. And, and in flying, waypoints uh, are limited to five letters. So we had to, all our waypoints had to be five letters. And we had the names of people we wanted to remember. We had our home village as a name. This happened to be five letters. So we'd think about the people. And, and yeah, every couple of days, it took us about four or five days to get to one of those waypoints. But we'd be thinking about that person or that place or that time. And it just um, broke it down and gave us something to work towards and name yeah. for. Wow. Okay. So in terms of the in terms of the geography, um, it, it wasn't it wasn't a direct line. Obviously, you went across. It was a, an S shape. You mentioned Anna. Do you want to talk a bit about that, or was there any more yeah, detail for that, or so was it pretty simple? You're saying it's not a direct line, and actually, David. So there were 35 crews, like Cameron mentioned, and we all set off within 20 minutes of each other. So you can see on this plotter at home so they're called dot watchers and these are the people who are looking on the tracker and they just see a little dot and each boat our boat lily i think was like an orangey color and they just see them disperse into into the wild into the ocean and we were the only boat which decided to go directly south and so everybody at home was just thinking what on earth are they doing are they going to africa are they going to like anywhere else but Antigua we were heading south and did they did they maybe think some did they maybe think you've been hijacked or, or <laughs> yeah. turn around Cameron's hijacked yeah turn around or who's on the rudder who's steering yeah. come on um so you say that there's definitely no direct route and at times we were behind crews but we had our plan and we followed that plan looking back now was it the best route I don't know I couldn't tell you but for us, it, it was the best route because we were able to gather our thoughts. We had, we had talked about it on land. We had said, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna head south. And then we did just shoot across west and gain some momentum going west. And as soon as you overtake one crew, 
it becomes very competitive and you're like oh how far away is the next crew and you don't actually know so you have to rely on your land crew to say to send you an update when the new data is released mm-hmm. so it's, so every four hours yeah. the the boat will give a ping back to land via satellite with some gps coordinates to say your position yeah. so every four hours it was updating and uh, by the end, well, towards the end of the race, people were telling us they were logging on five minutes just before the four hours would come to go, where are they going to be? Where are they going to be? So we, we got one update um, just about halfway to say you're 28th out of 35 boats. Mm. And we thought, 28? And there were some solos beating us, individuals. And we thought, this can't be right. We're obviously not really hard enough. So that's when we, we upped our game and we actually finished 18th and third out of all the pairs so just started yeah and that i think that really helped us mentally because it gave us something to look forward to but it's not like a formula one race where you can overtake somebody at the next corner it can sometimes take a few days to catch up with the crew and of course when you overtake you never see them because they could be a hundred miles north of you and you can only see three miles on the horizon exactly what i was just going to ask as the next next question cameron is that you mentioned about you know overtaking other crews how far away you're saying 100 miles uh, and, and when you say overtake i guess you're not are, are you in any contact with the other crews is there kind of walkie talkies or or what we had i think there was there was only one night that we were within range for our vhf radio and and we tried to call the guy on the radio just to say hello because yeah. he, he was by himself and we thought it'd be nice for him to hear another voice but I think to conserve power, he had his radio off at the time mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't actually get yeah. to chat. So <laughs> We were within two nautical miles. We yeah. even got the binoculars out just to see, his boat was wrapped in red, just to see if we could see him amongst the waves, amongst the huge swell, you know, yeah. but we couldn't. You, you can't you're see so anything. small out there. You're, you're a tiny dot. And in fact, there was this 980 foot tanker mm. that I saw off in the distance and it kept getting closer and closer. And I called them up to say, you know, we're over here. Don't hit us, please. And you have a system on board called AIS that sends out an alert when they're on track and there's a risk of collision. And he said, I can't see you. But he had us on his on his little radar thing. Um, and he ended up getting within one mile and he eventually saw us. But we could see him from 10 miles away. His, his question on the VHF was, uh, question, how do you survive like this? And we just responded with great difficulty because he was looking at us like, how are you so tiny? And, yeah. I guess you could respond, this is not a life choice. This, this, is, is, just a <laughs> this is just a 43-day excursion from my next life choice. But that's, that's fascinating. So moving on, guys, we, we're going to talk a bit about nutrition. Uh, obviously, it's one of the key aspects of, of a successful crossing. We've talked about the mental, the physical, technical, and, and obviously you've done training for all those things. In terms of the nutritional aspect, you said that you'd taken 70 days worth of, worth of food. What does that look like? And, and how much, how much do, you, do you think nutrition plays in terms of the success of, you know, your, your, obviously your body and keeping that going in terms of your endurance, but also what were you eating? Talk to us about that and drinking. Yeah, n- nutrition, but generally overall health and well-being, it's so important, especially when you're fatigued and tired often the last thing you want to do is is have a meal especially the same one you've been eating for six weeks you're just kind of over it there's no flavor so i found towards the end i was sort of having to be disciplined and forced food down myself 
Um, also, early on in the race, when you're being ill, it's important to have foods that you want to eat and digest and you're happy to enjoy coming back up as much as going down and stuff that will be absorbed into the body quite quickly. So you are getting some nutritional value from what you do consume. Um, most of our food was freeze dried in like these kind of ration packs. We did have to take um, a number of like ready to eat meals as well, which also are they're hydrated already. So in case our water maker broke, we could just eat those. And your senses change at sea, and people had warned us about this and told us to make sure you take a variety of everything, whether it's music, whether it's um, scent smells for the cleaning, um, also especially food. So we had tried a few ration packs on land, but when you get out there, everything just tastes so, so different. Um, so we, we were lucky and fortunate that we took a variety, but we definitely ended up having our favorites by the end. I was rummaging yeah. down to the bottom of the locker, just untaping all of them, trying to find one I liked. Um, and though we had a cooker, we had this uh, gas jet boiler. We only, uh, well, we took six cans of gas plus the can of gas that we were using for training throughout the year. And when we arrived in Antigua, we still had gas left in the training bottle. We had no time to cook. We were either rowing or sleeping. And quite often, it's just too risky to cook because of the conditions. You don't want to get a scold or a burn on your arm. So what we ended up doing was just rehydrating our meals, leaving them out in the sun for a couple hours and calling it slow cooking, just like letting them warm up in the sun and then just getting it down us. Wow. And then sometimes, obviously, you know, saying hi to it again i can imagine from, from <laughs> so, yeah. so on, on, yeah. on, to, on to that question what was your what was both of your favorite meals that you're looking forward to was it kind of a, a rhubarb crumble for dessert but what was the what was the what was the the spiciest thing you looked forward to we actually we had no desserts no. we didn't take any we had chocolate in our what we called snack bags yeah. so every day we were um we worked off of a a formula which was 60 calories per kilo of body weight. So um, I'll, I'll be honest about my weight, I'm 100 kilos. So that meant I needed to have 6,000 calories worth of food a day. Mine which was about 4,000. Yours was about 4,000. So even on a good day, it's hard to consume that amount, let alone when you're out in the ocean, tired, can't be bothered to cook, you're feeling a bit nauseous from the movement. So I think actually you probably only managed to consume about 2,000 a day when we were out there. And we had taken snack packs, so we packed our own. In fact, at home one day, our parents came home and we just had Kit Kat, Mars bars, Snickers, Harry Potter, like just lined up all the way around the house. It almost looked like Domino's, but of snacks, if you can imagine having chocolate all around your house. And then we put these into little Ziploc bags. And I remember Cameron at home being like, do you think that's enough? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's plenty. Oh my gosh, no. Every two hour shift, you would want to eat before your shift and you'd want to eat after your shift. So you'd want to be eating, honestly, just constantly. And we definitely did not take enough snacks to just be eating all the time. You, you only want to consume the you, tasty stuff the taste. like chocolate, but like all the chili con carnies and the pastas yeah. and the spaghetti bolognese, the heavy, stodgy meals that yeah. we were slow cooking in the sun. Oh, they got so bland and boring. But these snack bags that we had, we had one per day and we had planned 70 days worth of food. So that was 140 bags between us. And 
as we were making these, Anna came up with this awesome idea, which was, why don't we write something inspirational on the front of the bag? You know, whether yeah. it's a joke, a riddle, a Bible verse, something that we can, you know, have a thought for the day. And I was like, yeah, that is a good idea. We did 10 bags. We were like, how are we going to do another 130 inspirational quotes? So I think it took us an extra three days yeah, just to prepare just to... these bags so we could put something funny on the front. But it was um, worth it. It definitely was it, worth it. Because it some days... some entertainment for even two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine when you're, when you're that far out at sea, you, you're probably glad that you put the time in to actually look at those things because it can probably seem very menial on land. But as soon as you're out all those miles away, I can imagine huge, huge significance. But guys, mo moving on, let's talk about well, one thing we didn't touch on was some of the partners and sponsors that were supporting you guys, obviously, through the race. Obviously, we've already talked about it not being a, a one man thing or, or a two, two human thing in this case. It's, um, it's a huge team effort. And so we've, we've heard about your family, your, your father and, and the other members of the team. So what about some of the external partners that were on board? Yeah, so um, sponsorship and uh, sponsorship is often, and if there's anyone you know out there watching who is looking to do an extreme challenge that they need to raise funds for, um, I want to say that it's not just about raising funds. You often think of a sponsorship letter as a request to um, get some donation, some um, cash to put towards your project, mm -hmm. but actually there's a lot of value in onboarding a media partner or a PR company and making other connections that aren't just about the cash money. So we had a, an amazing media partner called WTV, who actually, when we onboarded them, just uh, through a poster in a lift at Anna's work in London, um, they brought our whole campaign to life. They started editing videos for us. They started engaging social media followers and yeah, became, became an awesome partner and like just brought everything to life. We were started watching our own stuff going, wow, this is so real now. We're out here rowing. And even we had a whole plan while we were at sea to deliver content back. And, mm -hmm. and I think that kept the journey going as well mm -hmm. for people who had supported us. And if you've ever had to ask anybody for anything um, like we did for sponsorship or resources or services or goods, uh, then I'm pretty sure you would have encountered a few of the sorts of people that we did as well. And there some are better to engage with than others. So when asking for sponsorship, if you're doing like a charity request or whatever it is, um, we had the blockers. So these are the people that are literally just like mm, look at the piece of paper, throwing the Atlantic, no. And so it's best to like try and get them to say no early. Then I think there were the talkers and these people are just like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. You know, just send me everything. Send me a PowerPoint, send me a video of yourselves um, and I'll send that to the right team. But honestly, you could send them everything and it would just never get to the right contact. And you, we'd just be at the end of the phone like, hey, you get hello, is there any hope? And then there are the mobilizers and these people are awesome. And all of our sponsors are mobilizers. They were people who just believed in it. They signed off right then and there. They wanted to get involved. And I think just try and find the personality type and the people who, who are willing to work with you in partnership with you. 
Um, and like Cameron said, WTV were our media partner and they did exactly that. They acted as a resource, which we didn't, we didn't have. And we, we also had to, um, where we were successful in sponsorship was when we made our kind of pitch or our presentation sponsor-centric. So when it's less about us and more about them and what they want, and sometimes that's about having a, just a short conversation in the early stages to, to run a three-minute elevator pitch by them and say, you know, how could we partner with you? What, what do you need your business to, to have and do? So for WTV, they worked quite a lot in a corporate and uh, structured environment. They hadn't done much uh, charity stuff or pro bono work, and they wanted to show that they're you know, a warm and welcoming company that's willing to do some social good. So that's why they wanted to work with us. We, we had another sponsor, uh, Safran, who wanted us to go to a number of schools and, and speak to the children there to inspire girls into edu engineering and, and STEM generally. And so Safran are an aeronautical engineering company. And so traditionally and predominantly, it's a male dominated industry. So their goal was really, to, and their vision was to drive women and girls into that and educate them, like Cameron said. So we really enjoyed actually going to a lot of schools and speaking about it. Mm. And also deliver a lot of community outreach. Um, by speaking and sharing your story with the community. Uh, so often to, to be successful in getting sponsorship, it's about collectively coming up with an activation plan that works for both partners, rather than just saying, oh, we're, we're rowing an ocean and we need uh, X amount of money. Please, can you give it to us? And they're like, well, what do you get in return? You of course have to come up with a few ideas to offer in the early stages, but through a conversation, you can work together and make it sponsor-centric. That's awesome. Now, I'm, I'm sure very insightful for people who are, who are wanting to be, maybe, maybe attempting something like this in the future. And we're going to talk about how people can maybe think about that uh, towards the end of this conversation. But one thing I wanted to ask you guys just a bit about was obviously being brothers and sisters. It's, uh, it's a thing we've already touched on. We've touched on uh, how, how important that relationship is, but also how how interesting that relationship can also be. I use that word sensitively uh, as I have experience in my own life regarding that as well. So in terms, of the, in terms of the competition, I wanted just to touch on this specifically. I'm a very competitive person with my twin brother. And um, I just wondered with you guys being quite competitive with each other, both being very independent, but also in your careers and, and through your sporting activities, was there any competition on the water of you know, I've done so many miles or you've done so many miles, let's, let's pick up the pace or what, what, what was there, was there any, was there any competition during the, the project uh, between you guys? We, no, we were always a, a team. I think we, we always um, looked at ourselves as a, as a team. It was a collective effort. You know, the boat would only go as fast as um, uh, we rode it together. It was never, we, we had structured it so we both spend equal amounts of time on the oars. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to measure, you know, one person rows 10 miles in their shift and the next person rows eight miles because conditions change. You get squalls coming through where the winds blow you the wrong way for a period of time. So it was just more about consistency and, and teamwork. We did have though one incident where I actually got a knee infection 
And so I was rowing arms only for a period and, and it got worse. I couldn't bend my knee and I was just doing it, uh, rowing from the waist. And eventually I, I couldn't even get out of bed. Like the infection had spread into my blood and it had just taken over my whole body. And it was like a, you know, like a really bad flu. Um, and I, I could just feel myself sweating. We didn't have a thermometer to measure my temperature, but I, I knew I was very feverish. And I, I said to Anna, and I apologize because I knew it was a team effort and I felt like I was letting her down by not being able to do my next shift. I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, um, but I just can't get, I couldn't even get up. I was lying down in the cabin looking at the ceiling and I couldn't even move. Everything had just gone dead. So Anna sort of stepped up then. And what we should say is that this was on about day 31. So we had had an amazing first month. We were getting on so well, like singing songs, laughing, just having the best time of our lives. I mean, still being sick over the side and stuff, but just all, the communication and relationship between us as, as crew members, as brother and sister, um, as teammates was as, as good as it could get. And then we actually got um, a visit from the support yacht. Uh, they just come and check up on you and this is part of Atlantic campaigns, and they don't get very close, but close enough for you to actually be able to speak to them. And they said, hey guys, like, how's everything going? Is everything working? Are you feeling okay? And we was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then two days later, Cameron just falls so sick with this knee infection. And it's in that time when you think, okay, uh, we've got a man down, an actual man down, and I'm the only engine that we have on board the boat. Uh, how am I going to keep continue and keep this boat going and you've gotten so far and so close to the end that you don't you don't want an obstacle to come now but the longer you're at sea the more likely things are going to things are going to go wrong so we had a medical kit on board where we had lots of antibiotics and I got on our satellite phone and I called uh, the race doctor and I said like these are the symptoms I have my knees swollen up and I cannot move at all my whole body is like just dead and I feel sweaty feverish and he said ah oh, we see this you know a couple times every year I think it's uh, what happens is you just need a micrograze and bacteria gets in through that cut and, and then it goes into your blood so he said take a, quite a high dose of antibiotics. And he said, after three days, you know, give me another call back. And he said, also drink loads of water to try and flush it out of your system. Mm -hmm. So every six hours I was taking this one antibiotic and then every four hours I was taking two of this other antibiotic and just trying to get better. In all that time though, I was just watching Anna row nonstop and she was only taking short breaks on the hour to shove some food down and snack because we were racing at this point and now we're starting to lose ground on other crews. And I think that's the only time where sort of uh, we lost sight of our teamwork because it wasn't going to plan. So I felt like I needed my teammate to get some water. She had to run the water maker and, and I thought she would deliver it through the hatch, fresh from the ocean. But that didn't quite happen and I was getting- With ice, was there no ice involved? Uh, in the, no, no, and an umbrella. No, in the no ice, no slice of pineapple or anything, no. Um, and Anna's there rowing relentlessly going, you know, where's my crewmate? My teammate's in the cabin having a sleep, chilling out, you know, resting. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I mean, I was always mentally okay. And I just had to judge the right moment to say, okay, I'm well enough now to do a little bit of rowing. 
and I actually ended up getting back on the oars after about 36 hours um, and I rode a day and a half non-stop and I just had to relieve her from that duty of rowing and that was the you know the teamwork uh, aspect there but I was doing maybe five percent pressure because I knew if I got back on the oars too soon then I had a risk of reinfection and my body would heal and recover and then after about a week I was back to full health I'd say even stronger than ever because yeah. I felt like I was trying to make up for that lost time and we were actually mm -hmm. putting some force into the oars making some splash in the water and uh, gaining on other crews and as we look back now what like six months having finished the row and as people ask about it and stuff that moment when Cameron was so sick and just confined to the sweaty cabin looking back I should have been should have been more caring I should have stopped and just said hey like it's fine we're out here not to win we're not winning we're out here just to get to the other side and stay best of friends I should have tended to his needs but I, I didn't and that's because I was just so obsessed with with competing at that time that I, I just couldn't stop and Cameron was saying like just stop just stop at it it's okay like you can stop for an hour and I remember he switched off the auto steering on the boat so we had this one button inside the cabin where he was and he just went and I just stop and he just flicked the switch and there was nothing I could do. Like all of my control at that time of the boat was totally out of control. We were drifting north. I had to put the oars in. And I think it wasn't until that moment that we kind of realized, okay, like rein it in. Like we are siblings. Like I love you. And there's a beautiful sunset. We're in this beautiful planet, beautiful ocean, beautiful earth. Like stop crying, stop fighting and just, and just breathe. And that's it. And that's what we did. And then Cameron did come back stronger than ever. And we started rowing together more than we had done in the first month. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, guys, that moves very nicely on to one of the questions I was going to ask, which was the toughest part of the row. I guess, Cam, for you, is that, would, would you say that that was the toughest part for you, this, this time of injury? Um, actually, well, it, that was one of the tougher moments because physically I was just gone. You know, I, I just had to believe in the medicine and, and the doctor's advice and, you know, and that and I, that I would eventually heal. And that's kind of where, you know, the hope comes into it. That you, you hope things will work out well. But um, one of the toughest parts for me was was early on rowing through the nights. So we would we were, our bodies hadn't adapted to the sleep rhythm of two hours on and two hours napping and then two hours on. Because you can never fully sleep properly for two hours. You kind of do um, you know, 15 minutes of getting yourself sorted and then 90 minutes sleep and then 15 minutes again getting preparation before you put your shoes on and do your shift. Um, so it was tough for me mentally because through the nights I would hear Anna rowing, I'm trying to get to sleep, and then I'd just hear a massive bang from a wave hit the side of the boat. And then I wouldn't hear any rowing at all. And I'd be like, has she gone overboard? Or is she still there on deck? And it, it played with my mind a lot. And it wasn't until maybe a week in, and I was just so tired, <laughs> I ended up just falling asleep. But yeah, that was hard. You know, thinking about your teammate, your younger sister, uh, possibly being injured by a massive wave, just out there in the night that are really terrifying they are um they are terrifying um yeah 
what was what was so i guess in terms of going through your mind at that point cameron just for our listeners what what was what kind of got you through was it was it was it kind of the, the aim at the end was it was it the goal at the end of, of kind of standing at the finish line what was it that got you through your relationship with your sister what was it for you well the sort of the, the torment and the worry about how she's doing on deck by herself what got me through that was just believing that we'd done the right training um and that she's a strong person she's gonna get it done trusting in her and and believing in the the communication that we'd set as part of our goals that if there was a problem she would let me know um and evidently uh, the logical side of me was saying well this isn't sustainable if you kind of keep worrying it's not going to work out you need your sleep you need your energy for your shift so i just had to to work through it because it was definitely a mental thing um you know somebody you really care about and you love when they're in that environment which is it's pretty hairy quite dodgy um you know rough sea dark night and you're you're lanyarded on by just a small climbing harness around your waist so i just felt a duty of care but um as we went through the journey our experience and our confidence grew and also my my confidence in, in anna grew and that eventually gave me peace of mind we like to wow. say as the waves grew bigger our confidence grew with them yeah that's a lovely it's a lovely uh line and we, we talked we talked before uh the, the the conversation guys about about the the different mottos and i'm, I'm sure we're going to hear uh, a bit more about that in a second but for, for you anna um what was the toughest part for you of, of the of the race and the row and 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 kind of how did you get yourself through that what were the techniques you used yeah so um like cameron said the nights are pitch black uh, there were some nights when we had no moon, no stars, nothing. And you couldn't even see like your arms. If you put your arms out now in front of you, you cannot see your hands. That's how dark it was. And sometimes at night, you would just see this little glow of like algae or whatever it is, just fluorescent algae like lighting up. And I think, oh my gosh, what is that moving? Like what is, what is beneath me? But it's terrifying when you're in big swell but you can see the swell and you can see the waves and if you just imagine like standing on the road and looking up at the steeple of a church that is how high some of the waves were and they're just coming towards you like they're just full-on coming for you and you're thinking okay it's getting darker and soon the sun's gonna set and I'm still growing and I just have to keep going. And every stroke in the darkness, you just are praying and like hoping and every stroke that you go through the wave, it's a relief and you're like, oh, I've made it. I've made one more wave. Another 13 seconds, oh, I've made another wave. And it's like, you're always living on the edge. You're never fully relaxed. You're never fully settled. You're always uncomfortable and you just take it a wave at a time. But when you can't see the waves and you can feel them, it is just terrifying. <laughs> yeah, sometimes terrifying. when it was was really, really tough, 
And it was usually mentally tough, if anything, because you're tired and you're hungry and you're missing home and you know everyone's having a good Christmas and then it's New Year's and you think, oh, everyone back on land, having fireworks and a good time in the warm, but you haven't had a shower in five weeks. You're, you're starting to smell itch and there's rashes in places and sores that you don't want to know about. Um, it's those mentally tough moments. You have to break it down minute by minute. And sometimes I just had to say to myself, okay, what, what do I need? What can I do just to perk myself up? Maybe it's put on a song I like, or maybe it's a podcast to distract from the situation. And eventually you'll come round, you know, eventually dawn comes in the morning. Yeah. And so we had some like, you have this beautiful sunset and then you're in the night and you're like, oh yeah. if there's a moon and stars, it's, don't get me wrong, it's beautiful and yeah. sort of a nice, just sort of flowing swell. It's very nice, but... In, the moon's not around for that long quite quite often and during winter daylight is limited as well so we had a lot of black nights and we just had to be okay it's my two-hour shift then I can go in the cabin and the cabin is kind of a bit of a safe space you can take your shoes off and relax and try and dry out and just sleep um, I remember one of the the military crews just before going they said they used to refer to their sleeping bag as the time machine or the time accelerator. Because <laughs> any time they spent in the sleeping bag, it just accelerated time. And they, they got through whatever bad moments. So sleeping definitely helped. Just sleep it off, wait for dawn to come in the morning, and it'll be all right. <laughs> so that moot. Sorry, Anna, go for it. No, I was just going to mention that I'd spoken earlier a bit about Kelda Woods. So she was our mental health coach. And something that she some advice she gave us right before we left was if you think of your mind as a google search bar so whatever you type into google it'll bring back all of those results related to that search and at night time i was thinking like oh, oh my gosh i'm scared and if i had put that in my google search bar i all of those searches related to it would be negative they would be like worry anxiety fear um, disaster, all of these bad things. So we would just say to ourselves, like, how can we shift that mindset? Like, what are you putting in your Google search bar? Um, so if I put like night sky and peace and tranquility and atmosphere, then it brings back just such more positive results. Um, so we would just, yeah, ask ourselves, like, what's in your Google search bar today? And even now when I'm working from home and, or I'm having a bad day, I think, how can we reverse engineer that into something more positive and bring better positive connections to, to your mind? I think, I think that's essential. And we, we were talking before about motivation and some of the things that really kept you guys going. Now, from, from our conversations, I, I understand that there's, there's multiple things. There's, some, there's obviously some mottos that we're going to hear. Maybe we can hear in a minute that, that got you through. We'd love to hear about some of the music choices that got you through at the entertainment, talking about maybe common grounds. We're gonna we can hear about that. And then also obviously your faith for both of you is a big area uh, of your life, uh, your faith in, in you know, your Christian faith, your faith in God. And so it'd be really great to hear, you know, how, how that helped you. So your your motivation, how did you spur each other on in those times, both the good times and the bad, you know, when the not when the dark is there, but also in the light times. How how, how did that how did that play out? So we were just speaking um, about like our most terrifying moment, right? And you mentioned about faith, David. And I remember that one particular night when the waves were just coming as high as a church steeple. I remember 
rowing into the sunset and rowing into the darkness and being so terrified for my life and thinking, okay, God, what, what is that Bible verse? Or what is that quote that you said? Like, like, do not be afraid. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, what is it? What is it? I, pro I promise I know it. Like, tell me now. And I think I call myself a Christian. I am a Christian. But it wasn't really until the row that I think when you are in a life-threatening situation, when you are so scared for your life, that is when you are going to run to something. And every single night I was running to God, every single night. And that one night in particular, I remember being like, oh my gosh, what is that Bible verse? And Cameron had actually, he had a Bible in the cabin. And the next day, I Which went, was controversial <laughs> because of the added weight. <laughs> it was very controversial. I remember getting into the cabin and um, I had taken like a, a Bible message of the day. It wasn't a verse, but it was, it basically was God speaking. So it was like, uh, he is with you and him in your life. And I remember the next day reading this passage out loud to Cameron and it was Joshua, um, Joshua 1, 9. And it was, do not be afraid, be strong and be courageous. And I was like, Cameron, last night was the most terrifying night for me. And I was like, and now it's just said, and I remember calling to God, like, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, what is that verse? And then it coming up the next day, and I still got it as my little diary with all my notes on it, my very poor handwriting whilst you're sloshing in waves. But um, yeah, you, you drill and you rely on your faith at the best of times, but also at the worst of times, um, every single night, every single day at least at least i did and together being able to share that um and maybe yeah. connect through music through that yeah. as well and i think the the cool thing for me about this whole journey is when you when you go out to sea whether it's on a tiny rowing boat or on a sailing boat um and you're away from land and you're out on the ocean you're taken away from absolutely everything so all the billboards that we see driving down the road, you know, that you, oh, now you need a KFC and all those kind of cravings. After a few weeks, they just, they disappear. And in a spiritual sense, you know, you're, you're not going to church on a Sunday because there's no church out there. There's, um, you're not having, you're not being fed uh, Bible verses through Instagram and stuff. So like, uh, where is your, your spiritual source coming from? And we talk about God being omnipresent. And I think even though, we were out in the middle of the vast ocean and there was literally nothing around but water and waves. It still felt like a deep connection. And there were definitely moments where I was like, yeah, there, there, there is a creator of this world. You know, there is a God. How can we have all this detail? How can these waves perfectly form and, and lead us in this path in the right direction? And so I, I arrived in Antigua kind of just feeling really wholesome like uh, just complete yeah because I'd had um I'd been taken away from all the the normalities of faith that we see day to day and it was just more like a, a deeper connection with, with God. Wow and I guess we haven't talked about showering or going to the toilet uh during the row but I guess t taking a swim I guess is that not the same as a shower in terms of being cleansed Cameron? So, okay, I'm, I'm never afraid to say this. I'll, I'll always admit where I'm uh, 
you know, have weaknesses. And one of my weaknesses was uh, jumping in the ocean because on day five, we had been stalked by a shark, a big shark that I had spotted off our stern. And I, Anna was having a rest and I was like, Anna, Anna, wake up. I can see a fin in the water. We've got company. We, yeah, I was like, we've got company and it's not good. It's not welcome. It's not and, another boat. Yeah, <laughs> no. And um, so we had this uh, shark stalking us for maybe eight, eight or 10 hours for a day. And on after about two weeks, uh, we needed to clean the bottom of the boat because barnacles form on the bottom. You're only going two knots at the best of times. So all these little kind of sticky boogers, we call them, form on the bottom. And you need to literally take an ice scraper and with some effort, scrape them all off. And Anna was like, don't worry, I'll do it. I'll jump in. And I was like, okay, please be my guest. And I cleaned the bottom of the boat. Maybe she did it about three or four times before I was like, okay. This is my chance. I must do it. I'm going to force myself to face my fears, jump in. But you better be on deck watching out for things and let me know if anything comes. And the vastness is just so blue. You can actually see for miles underneath there. Like if, any, if anything were to come, you would see it. You would see it. From you there. hope you'd see it. You'd hope you see it. So I, was, I jumped in and, and I was looking around. After he cleaned his goggles about 17 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was filming him. I'm like, he's cleaning his goggles again. Is he nervous? <laughs> A little I, was, nervous. I was very nervous, yeah. But you, got... but, you know, it's refreshing to get in. But if anyone's cleaning the bottom of the boat, then the boat's not moving. So what we tended to do was have bucket baths on deck. Um, and just fill uh, our bucket with a little bit of fresh water. It was important even just to rinse your shorts out every single day because you get a lot of salt crystals that form and then the abrasion from those salt crystals just cause really nasty chafing and stuff. So, and then other days we'd have a, a bit of soap and, and try and keep the hygiene regime going. Uh, but we had disposable wet wipes was sort of our main source of freshening up. You can't call it washing really, no. <laughs> it was just kind of, freshening up wow so for, for those for those uh, listeners who are who are really keen to know the the answer to the question it, it's not a it's not a pretty pretty question but in terms of like relieving yourself in terms of the toilet how how does that happen when you're 2,000 miles into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean for, for those, <laughs> yeah, so we have one bucket for washing one bucket for other business and I, I don't like being on stage when <laughs> I go to the loo. I don't know about anyone else watching. And so it was, I had actually taken this thing called the poncho of modesty. Oh my God. So the plan was to put this poncho on every time I needed to go do a number two. Uh, but what actually ended up happening, because it was just so much effort to put the poncho on, was uh, my body adapted. And during the nights when Anna was sleeping, I think I got it down to 90 seconds. I could just get <laughs> off the oars. You know when you need to go in the bucket. Mm -hmm. And then the expression is... Bucket and chuck it. Bucket and chuck it. Over the side, clean the bucket, and then back on the oars. And, yeah, so... We did. We managed. We, we, managed. we managed. You always find a way. Clean and tidy. Clean and tidy. That sounds, sounds cool. So in terms, of, in terms of the music, guys, we talked about motivation. We talked about the the strength coming from that that faith uh, in God. In terms of the, the music, we're, we're eager to hear about some of these tastes in music and the, the common interest that you found that you that you found out that you had, obviously on the 42 days at sea. So what are the, 
what were some of those things that you experienced you had in common and the music that you listened to? Yeah. So we took a variety, um, like you mentioned, our senses do change. And we took everything from, I think, country music, Christian playlists, worship music. We even had some rock music just to keep us awake at nighttime, like blasting through the speaker and, until it broke. Um, just as much music as we possibly could. And also some desert island discs. So really just listening to some stories. And I think most of the time it was, it was to keep the person rowing entertained. And the person who was not rowing was most likely sitting on deck and you would probably, we'd fall asleep. We would just fall asleep whether there was music playing, whether a video was playing, anything. But um, yeah, it's, it's hard to think, okay, let's just turn the speaker on. Like you always have to think, okay, how much battery do we have? Is there enough sun to charge the speaker? Um, it's not just everything like you have it on land at your fingertips. Um, and we had some audio books that we took with us yeah. as well. Um, so one that was, well, the great thing about the speaker we had was it meant we were both listening to the same thing. And if we were listening to the same thing, then we had something to talk about or discuss. So especially with the audio books, you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Was there one author, in particular? There definitely was one book in particular, which, you know, at the beginning, I think Anna was a bit like, oh, I'm not sure this is my taste or I don't know much about it. Mm -hmm. um, but once we kind of got into it, we were like, actually, it's quite funny. And that was Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. It's about his time in South Africa growing up during the apartheid era. And yes, yeah, like a lot of fascinating historical stories. And uh, of course, he's a, a well-known comedian. So it's quite funny in, in his writing style. And it just gave us something to talk about. So Cameron would listen to a chapter on his two-hour shift, then I would listen to the chapter, and then we'd just talk about it and be like, oh, did you get to that point when he mentioned this? And it was just funny, and it brought entertainment. And when you're out there so isolated, so far away from anything, like on our phones today, we just have to, it's in front of us. If we want something to entertain ourselves, we just go to our phone immediately. And we, we didn't have that. So we had to really kind of go back and be children again and think, okay, what can we do? Let's be creative. Let's make up words out of all of our sponsors' names. Uh, we were trying to find how many words we could make up, but just to keep our minds stimulated. Yeah. Um, but it was great when we could share the music together. We obviously had headphones. We could listen to songs individually. And at night, yeah. it wasn't always great if somebody had the speaker blasting on deck while you're trying to get some sleep in the cabin. <laughs> so um, we had headphones for the nighttime, mainly when you wanted a bit of alone time. Um, but yeah, during the days, definitely, we, had, we just shared whatever music we had. To make the shifts go by, um, I actually used to count the songs. I mean, I counted a lot of things. I counted rowing strokes, I counted seconds. You just, you do everything. And um, I remember one night just saying to Cameron, I got it down perfectly to a T. And I knew within two minutes, either after or before looking at my watch, because if you looked at your watch, you weren't rowing. So you didn't want to look at your watch and think, okay, how much longer do I have in my ship? Mentally, you were thinking, oh, how much longer do I have? So I would just listen to the music, count the songs, and then I'd look. And if I got it within two minutes or five minutes, I, oh, it was the best feeling ever. I'd be like, Cameron, wake up, two minutes to go. 
And if you're late for your shift, it was the most painful thing. Like 30 seconds to go, you get yourself on these oars right now. <laughs> yeah, because we, talk, we talked a bit beforehand, guys, about how, about the discipline and how mm. obviously Cameron's obviously had experience doing his, his pilot training and, uh, and obviously both working in industry as well. So in terms of discipline, both in your careers and also it's obviously so much more important when you're, you know, two and a half thousand miles away from anyone else. How, how did that, how did that play out? And in terms of, were there any times where you guys had to kind of say, right, no, you need to keep going or that's not good enough. We need to, we need to keep this discipline tight. So Cameron, as the, as the kind of the taskmaster, how did you, how did you, did you have to do that any times? Well, Anna, Anna once asked me, she said, please, could I just have another half an hour, please? And this was after my knee infection when I was feeling guilty, you know, and I hadn't done as much rowing as she had. And I just was like, no, I'm really sorry. You, you can't. I need my rest now. And she, uh, she was like, okay, fair enough. And then woke up and we, we tried to make it, um, we, we tried to do things like, uh, you know, make it, um, comfortable for the other person to wake up so if we could have like a meal ready for them on deck that they could eat before they started their rowing shift we'd do things like that if we could have um you know towels positioned in the right place or the water bottle full so they're ready to go you know when you're when you're sleeping you're sleeping you're not doing anything else but the person who's awake and they're they're rowing mainly but they're also doing other duties to keep the boat clean and on course so anything we could do to be a team player like fill each other's water bottle up make each other food then we definitely did all those things even even washing sometimes we'd be like i'll make i'll make you some extra water so you can have a wash today you smell clean the clothes put them in water oh yeah so as soon as soon as so, so as soon as you get back on land obviously those those tasks uh, get relinquished in, in terms of I'm not going to be making you meals and I'm not going to be doing your laundry. <laughs> yeah. 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 Guys, so yeah. let's let's talk a bit about some of the mottos. We talked about this earlier, some of the mottos that got you through and some of the, the kind of mantras that you talked about before the race that then really came into play during the race. Yeah, so one of our, one of our mottos or mantras pre-race during the whole campaigning side, just because we were so busy and we had a finite amount of energy and time, was 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And really our, our reasoning for that was just to kind of keep us moving with things. We, uh, we sent all our friends and family in the first year Christmas cards. And then in the second year we sent uh, potential sponsors Christmas cards um, saying we're leaving on the 12th of December. Mm -hmm. And to get those Christmas cards out, took so much time and we could have faffed with the front cover forever we said oh no it needs an extra snowman or maybe it shouldn't have a snowman at all or like what should the design we put the logo? yeah does the logo go on the front or the back and and it got to a point where we just had to say actually 80 percent of this nice christmas card is better than not sending one at all mm -hmm. so we're gonna go with this design and yeah it worked out in the end generally and then another one of our mottos, which also started on land, because during all of this campaigning, uh, it was tough too. We spent endless hours together, uh, very into the early hours, just trying to get stuff done. Um, and we'd spend more time wasted just arguing about things. So we ended up 
realizing that we had the better time and got more work done when we were friends and when we were having fun. So that was banter, not bicker. And so also brought that onto the boat and whenever things got tough or we were having some low moments, just remembered to laugh and that we get on better when we're having banter and not bickering, stop the bickering. And I think when we were actually on one of our training courses uh, down in Tinmouth, the instructor was like, gosh, these two, they're gonna row the Atlantic together, but all they do is bicker. And we were like, what? No, we don't, we get on really good. So we thought we got on great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, banter, not bicker. You gotta prove people wrong. That's really yeah. cool, guys. In, t in terms of, um, just before we, we, we're coming to a close of our conversation today um, to all our listeners, but just before we do, there's a few areas I wanted just to understand. And, and we touched on the whale, or, or was it a shark that you saw, Cameron? What was the, what were some of the other amazing bits of nature? We've heard about, obviously, the moon, the, the sunsets. But just talk us through maybe some of the best bits that you enjoyed of the row and then also some of the nature that you saw. Obviously, we've touched on a bit. Yeah, well, I've, I've never seen so many shooting stars in my life. They're just all the time out there, just flying across the sky. And this one night I saw a meteorite come. I thought it was a green flare that a ship had set up in the distance. You it was, was so, going to hit the boat. I thought it was going to hit the boat. It was so bright. You know, it must have had like copper <laughs> or something in it. In the whole sky, it was pitch black until this green fireball just came down from the sky and just lit the whole sky up green. Mm -hmm. And then it was gone in a flash. Mm -hmm. And and it obviously happens so quickly, you don't capture it on film. And even if you did, you wouldn't have the, the right lens to, to even do it. And the boat's moving. So... But, you know, it's stuck in my mind. It's just one of those amazing moments of, like, just seeing a different side of this planet that you don't normally see in quite um, a lit urban environment. And then from my side, just having the respect for being in the ocean. And there were so many dolphins. And like Karen said, I, as soon as I had the opportunity to jump in the water, I was in. And I remember looking around, Cameron, there's a dolphin, there's a dolphin. I threw my oars, clipped on and just jumped in. And I looked beneath me and just schools of dolphins everywhere, two of them right beneath my feet like this. And I don't know, you see dolphins at like SeaWorld and in these parks, but that's not their natural environment. And I was thinking, wow, like we are in someone else's environment. We are in the environment of these whales, these beautiful creatures and like, do I want to throw pieces of plastic overboard? No, I don't, because that dolphin is going to choke on it. And before I was like, recycling? What's recycling? I don't do that. But now I've come back and I'm actually like, there's a reason behind everything that we're doing. And just being out there in some something else's environment is humbling, humbling to an extent. Hmm. We saw yeah. killer whales as well. Yeah. We had a few visits from those. And uh, one when we had quite rough sea and the swell was about five meters, and you could just see this massive, massive whale in the wave as the wave rose, <laughs> and then it would disappear down, and it just circled our boat for a couple of hours, and um, sometimes at night as well. <laughs> Anna, <laughs> Anna used to, <laughs> to laugh and think that I was pulling her leg, but it's, it's actually true. You could hear, like, from the blowhole of a whale, like, and then you know it's a whale, because it just smells like, just I different. thought it was something else that smelled. Anna blamed me for causing <laughs> that, but no, no, no. And you can, yeah. You, and you know they're around, but obviously at night you can't. 
can't really see them. Wow, that's that's awesome. Yeah. It must have been so amazing to see them that so so close and and, and at hand. In in terms of keeping close, obviously technology played a huge part in in the success of the actual row itself, but also in maintaining that mental health going across as well. Uh, obviously, keeping in touch with other boats, the support team, and obviously family back at home. So why don't why don't you talk a bit about that? I know um, Anna, you work for Microsoft, and that is a as a, as a you know a big part of what happened in the row talk about some of the technology and how that helped in the communication for this mm. row yeah so there is power in technology and it keeps exactly like you said david people connected and people together there were times in the middle of the atlantic where we were actually closer to people in space than we were on land and during the really hard times and during the really competitive times and during those times when we couldn't find strength within, we had to rely on those who were still on land and our land crew. And that consisted of a chat between friends, family, colleagues, everyone who was supporting us. And what they didn't know at the time is actually that we were on that chat as well. So people were posting messages of support, people were making up lyrics to, and changing the lyrics to famous songs and putting like the seedlings in there and rowing and making poems. And it was all of this stuff that we were able to see. And although you're so alone out there, it's just us two, you felt still so connected with the people um, so far away from you. And it's that that really, during the hardest times we needed, and it was a huge morale boost, just being able to read these messages and not only see their names on our screen, but also when you jump in, the names on the side of the boat to those people who supported us, just remembering them and thinking, okay, yeah, you're probably having a beautiful Christmas dinner, you know, roast turkey, whereas we're here eating a freeze-dried one. But, um, but still, you're connected with them and you you think back to those who have really supported you and who love you and who have believed in you every single stroke of the way. So we actually took with us as part of our equipment a device called the BGAN, which is, um, it's kind of, it looks a bit like a Wi-Fi router, but you actually have to point it at the nearest satellite to establish a connection. And it's, it does create a Wi-Fi hotspot, but it's like going back to 90s dialogue. <laughs> if you ever remember just like text loading in little sequences like this so we though we say we had an internet connection it was really really slow and in rough sea it was like it was hard to keep um, the maximum beam angle i think 17 degrees so you really have to be like locked on to the uh, satellite so you're holding it with one hand you're on your your tablet trying to get the messages with another hand um, and it became almost like a blessing and a curse. It was great because we could download these messages of support, but it was also a curse because you're getting less sleep and rest time. And anytime I downloaded messages, I always wanted to share them with Anna. I was like, guess what? We got 76 messages. <laughs> and we ended up turning it on like every couple of days. Yeah. And it also allowed us to send images and short video back to our media partners. Um, so I remember there was a, like quite a cool video of like Anna swimming with the dolphins and I was holding this thing for half an hour just to send like a five second video back and I had no sleep that rest break but yeah, yeah we were trying to we wanted to share the journey as it happened because it's almost too late once you've made landfall people want to know what you're going through at the time. 
And exactly. They want to see what's happened during the during it actually happening, I can guess. Yeah. Exactly. And our auntie Cheryl, so she was like our land manager. Um, and she kept us competitive. So when we were starting to overtake crews, like we said earlier, you couldn't see them. You can't look on your AIS and find the nearest ocean rowing boat, which could have been, I think at one point, our one which we were trying to overtake was 100 miles away. So we really had to rely on the people back home to say, okay, the nearest crew to you is about 40 degrees south and 30 miles. It's going to take us X amount of time to catch them. And that's what kept us hungry and fighting for every inch and every piece of water that we could, we could get. I think if we didn't have that information and that data, then we wouldn't have been in a position to compete as, as well as we were. Also, weather updates. Not like yeah, you could do anything about it. You know, a sail yacht might be able to divert around bad weather. In an ocean mm -hmm. rowing boat, are you really going to spend a whole day trying to row away from a storm rolling through? Um, it's, it's a bit unrealistic going off track that far. So we'd get these weather updates and I remember having one and it said, <laughs> in two days time, you're gonna have really rough sea. So start getting prepared now. So we put everything away, we locked everything down, tidied our hatches. We made sure we had a wash that day, mm -hmm. um, did all our laundry so it could dry in the sun before the rain and the storm was gonna come. And then the next weather update was how long the storm was gonna last. <laughs> And they give it to you in days, yeah. not hours. And it was four days. They said you can expect this sea for four days. And yeah. I just remember going, oh, it just, you just. It's yeah. just draining. And yeah. trying to get in and out of the cabin and change positions and unclip your harness and clip around the other person is like effort to be like, okay, is there a wave? No, it's clear, go. And it's just a routine but it takes a little bit i had to effort. knock on the cabin door before opening it to ask if, if it was safe to come out yeah. you had to get out of the cabin within like 20 seconds to reduce the risk of any wave coming in and flooding it just and for it to last five days just oh it was so it was yeah demoralizing, it was demoralizing yeah <laughs> but for our, for our listeners guys was this this five days kind of uh see that rough sea that you mentioned about is that the same for everyone or is that kind of specific to your area how, how does that kind of spread out i guess it's uh it's specific to you mainly um but because as the race goes the the fastest and the slowest boat um they start to spread out and i think the greatest distance between boats is like two thousand miles you know there's a crew of five guys who have finished and there's a soloist who's sort of only 400 miles off the coast of um, La Gomera. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it was mainly for us. And you are quite focused on your own boat at that time. Mm -hmm. You're not really thinking about other crews because you need to make sure it's all safe and that you're doing everything right. Exactly. exactly. Well, guys, as we're coming to the end of this conversation, I wanted just to touch on a few things post-race that you can look back in hindsight. It's always It's always great to be able to look back at um, certain things after an event's happened. So a few little questions before we wrap up. If you could do it again, um, what would you change or what would you take or leave? I guess, uh, what would you take that King James Bible to kilogram weight? Or would you, uh, <laughs> would you throw some of that, throw some of those empty or, or unused sachets out uh, of food that, that you maybe don't like of that Triticon Carney? What would be um, the things you would change? Maybe, well, from the row, but also outside that as well. A few, a few things, that's, let's just be, let's be precise here. So, 
at the beginning of this uh, talk with you, I mentioned we went to that inspection, right? And we had nothing at this inspection. Well, we also had the same exact inspection two days before we left. And we had everything we needed, if not more than we ever needed, because Cameron was like, would get ideas from other crews when you're at the start you're like oh why have they got this here and a helmet why do you need a why do you need a helmet a cycling helmet when you're rowing an ocean but there's always a reason behind everything so i was thinking we are fine we're settled we need nothing else but then cameron had a different mentality and wanted to take all of it just in case um when we got to antigua and we emptied the boat it was a bean bag. Where did that come in? We never used that. A helmet? We never used the helmet either. A fishing line? If only we had time to fish. I mean, we were competing, not fishing. So I think the first time round, we almost needed to take most of this stuff and it was fun to, but um, we didn't use quite a lot of it. And so looking back, I wouldn't have taken the six kilos of coffee that Cameron mm. thought he was going to boil. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I took a lot of coffee and I didn't even have one cup at sea. It's so, because we, we actually had this uh, caffeine chewing gum mm. and it was so much easier just when you were tired at night to just put the caffeine chewing gum. It's nice minty flavor and it really worked. You had like, and it lasted just long enough that you could still get to sleep. So you do your two hour shift, you'd be alert and awake and then you'd still be able to get to sleep. Whereas there's just no time to brew a coffee in, in the ocean and the boat moving around. Yeah. Um, I'm the type, unfortunately, I'm the type of person who takes a ski jacket and flip-flops on holiday, you know, just in case <laughs> whatever conditions are thrown at you. So I definitely overpacked and we had to cut down a lot of things, especially from our medical kit. Mm. But it's, it's always inevitable. You're going uh, to have that one situation where you, you don't have the spanner or the screwdriver you takes too long and it doesn't fit in the position that you need and you wish you had a shorter one and so you just have to try and overcome that as best you can so it's good to take things that are versatile so whether we, i don't think we we took a sleeping bag but we also took like a really lightweight sheet and the, the lightweight sheet was good for sleeping on deck as well as in the cabin and it was it dried quickly so you know just different things could help keep the sun off of you and yeah you could use that as a bandage if you need it just it's very versatile so i guess it was it was very light as well i guess a sheet uh, it's not going to be a huge issue yeah. if you do have to get rid but in terms of um in terms of that what is what what would you say or how would you say the race has changed you and and your, yourself and obviously your sibling relationship as well how how would you how would you say that is uh, that has developed or changed? Yeah, so I mean, I arrived in Antigua having not really like been on my phone, engaged with notifications and apps going off, and I really felt like this wholesome connection with the world. And um, so I, I definitely have this new appreciation for stopping, stop swiping, you know, or stop scrolling. Um, basically, we can. We can um, lack inspiration and then the, our default is just to turn on our phone and scroll and just try and find something of interest. But I don't think that's uh, really where the excitement is. 
I think it exists in the moment and what we have around us. So I have this newfound appreciation for just like living in the moment, embracing what we have around us, who we have around us, even if that's only one other person who you've seen for the last five weeks. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just to stop scrolling. And also I have a newfound appreciation for our, our forefathers who had to ration during the war because we had a limited amount of food on the boat. Inevitably, it was enough and more than we needed because we crossed quite quickly. But just to be able to say, okay, these five treats that I packed, because we had taken after eights, we took four cans of Coca-Cola, you know, for those low days or New Year's Eve. Um, just to say, no, I'm not gonna have that treat right now. I'm gonna postpone it and I'm gonna have it later or I'm gonna wait till we're halfway and then I'll treat myself to this. And so like a, a new discipline and a newfound appreciation just for rationing and saying no to things rather than just living in this kind of disposable and consuming society where we can just get anything we want. You just go on your app, you scroll, you get Uber Eats and it's delivered to your door. So sort of turn that off have your moments where you, you look, maybe there's some berries in the garden, as long as they're the right ones to eat, <laughs> but just kind of appreciate those and enjoy those new things. Wow. And you, Anna? Um, I mean, definitely the disposable society is something so big. Uh, and on the boat, we had to keep all of our garbage and we couldn't just throw it overboard. Like, And just realising how much trash and garbage we were producing even just the little small snack packs that we had taken, we just had litres and litres of bottles just stuffed with garbage. So there's so much of it. But um, what I realised the most, like looking back, is really that difference between having motivation and actually being disciplined to continue and act upon that motivation. Um, I don't know, my mum will say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to go on a diet tomorrow. She'll eat healthily for one day and then the rest will, I don't know, have some chocolate that night. I'm like, at that time that you said you were going on the diet, you've got motivation. But then she doesn't actually have the discipline to continue it through. When I read Ross Savage's book, I was motivated at that time to row an ocean. But then there were seven years between actually doing it. And in those two-hour shifts, we couldn't rely every day on that motivation you're not always motivated in life. It's impossible to be so. And that's when you have to hone in on the discipline. You've set yourself a goal. It's that one goal and you're disciplined enough to follow it, follow through with it, even when you are at your lowest point. Um, and that's, that's what's going to take you further is that discipline, not that motivation. And so just whatever aspect of life you're in now, whether it's my work, anything, um, have that goal, but don't rely on the motivation to get you there make sure you're disciplined enough to do it that's that's fantastic well the final thing i wanted just to um understand from you guys was um before we before we had the call we had a conversation about facing uncertainty and this was one of the big aspects of of the the, the big learnings from from taking part in this row and also i guess we're in a time as many will know the reason we're not at a live event right now is that we are in a pandemic a global pandemic and people aren't able to meet up as they used to. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now in many different areas. But I guess you guys have had 43 days uh, and a bit more of uncertainty as to what's going to happen next. You know, the day, the next day might be a, uh, you know, horrendous weather, the, the day after might be nice, but it was all uncertain. So I guess I'd just like to finish with just a message really as to 
what you want to say to pe to people, you know, in this situation of uncertainty. We're all in this together in many ways. You guys were by yourselves in the middle of the ocean for for forty plus days. But for you guys, what would be the the kind of take home that you've learned that you want to really share just with with people and our listeners this evening, just on that uncertainty and how to act and and kind of act and think in that in, in these times. Yeah, well, we prepared for two years to set out and do this row. And even as we were rowing away from the dock, away from land, there was this unknown factor, this uncertainty, um, because we didn't know really how our bodies would cope. We knew we had done all the training, all the preparation. We had spoken to people who had been through it before, but not in our boat, not in the same relationship. There was a unique factor about us. So I think the, the key thing is, uncertainty doesn't have to cause anxiety so uncertainty is an okay thing to exist we often confuse excitement and nerves and i think when we were rowing away from land i was of course nervous but i was i was equally excited and if i just amplified my excitement a little bit going into the uncertainty became a bit more enjoyable Whereas if I kind of played on the nerve side of things, it could have quite easily fallen into anxiety. So uncertainty doesn't have to cause anxiety. You just need to amplify the right feelings and emotions within you. And uncertainty almost comes hand in hand with being outside of your comfort zone. If you're in your comfort zone, you're going to be comfortable, you're happy, you know how to control everything. Um, but being able to know exactly what you can control and forget stop worrying about what you can't control because that's what's uncertain so start worrying about what is certain and focusing on those things we couldn't control the weather we couldn't control where other crews were but we could control how we were feeling that day what our shift pattern was that's why we changed our shift pattern from two hours on two hours off to row 12 hours on together and then the rest of the night we were rowing in our two hour shifts so you just have to make sure you know what you can control and focus on those things to make it feel as certain, certain as you possible. And there's, there's a quote from Steve Jobs that I love, which is, you can only connect the dots when you look back. And it's like, you know, going forward, you have all this uncertainty, but that period will pass. And now we're the other side of this row. We look back and say, well, we did it. We rode 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean, which is absolutely bonkers so guys on that note just crossing the line of uh, the finish line um for the atlantic challenge you did that in january this year in 2020 what was the feeling like as you as you came through into harbor i know i know we talked before about this being one of your motivations talk to us very briefly about that final arrival and then um and then we're going to close off so gosh um anything any dream you have you dream about it, right? You have this vision of what you hope it's to be. I don't know if it's your wedding day, you, you mentally play that through that whole day in your head before it actually happens. So for Olympians, they imagine and visualize themselves standing on that podium with a hat on their head and with the medal around their, their neck and flowers in their hands. And for ocean rowers, I just remember seeing this one picture of um, this one guy and he was holding up his red flare, completely shredded, but shredded with sweat, shredded with grit, shredded with pure, raw emotion. 
And that image was just locked in my head for the past three years. And when we were getting very competitive, I remember saying to Cameron, I said, I'm not going to be happy. And when I hold up that flare, I'm not going to hold it up unless we overtake this certain crew. And so we got very competitive and obviously I would have still held up my flare, but visualizing that moment and that coming into English Harbour and just hearing the noise, like you haven't heard anything for 30, 40 days, nothing, silence, just waves. And just hearing all of the super yachts just beeping their horns, all of the roaring off the top of Shirley Heights as you come in, um, seeing the lights, it's, it's almost now just still like a dream. In fact, I've got shivers and goosebumps on my arms just talking about it. And um, just holding up, not just a flare, but like holding it next to my brother, like my best friend, my brother, my hero, my teammate, my crewmate. Like there's no better person I would have wanted held it up, held it up with, um, and so proudly with either. I remember first seeing land and it was actually in the evening and you could see a glow from the lights of the island. And I said to Anna, <laughs> look, look over my shoulder. I think that's the, uh, the reflection of the island lights off of the cloud top. Mm. And she's like, no, it can't be. And it's I was like, no, sunset. it definitely is. <laughs> and, then, and then you get this smell and you can actually mm. smell land and it, it hits you and it just all, ch everything changes, the whole environment. But we saw land and we, we thought, tomorrow we're going to be there. Uh, but we hadn't made it yet. And there was still like tons of rowing to do. And I think it actually took us two days of seeing land until we actually were able to go round the corner into the harbour. And then all the super yachts lined up there. They all set their horns off. And we had arrived on a Friday night after what they call um, uh, Seafood Friday. They have a massive banquet. Uh, where they line the marina with different fish stalls and food stands and all the island comes there basically. So we, we were a bit late to the party, we arrived just before midnight so <laughs> all the food had closed down. They saved us a burger which was nice of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, just still a few people hanging around from that party and it's just the best welcome ever, probably like mm -hmm. 200 people uh, lined up on the side all cheering. So what? So in final final question, in terms of when you when you you arrive at a land, you rode for all this time. What was the first thing? Obviously, people people can have choices as to what they what they do and what they love or what you've been thinking about. What was the first thing you guys did when you when you got onto land once you'd uh, once you'd touched down on the uh, in Antigua? Well, the, the Antiguan welcome comes with a rum punch a in rum hand. Punch, yeah. uh, quite a punchy rum punch. So that was the first thing we had. And then just the shower. The shower. I, oh, we, I think oh. we spent a good, I spent two hours yeah. under fresh running water and fresh still water. there were you know, cr you know, cracks in my skin where salt mm. wounds were still existent. Yeah. But just fresh water just in water. your face. Yeah, it was and amazing. clean water. Yeah. Oh. And we take it for granted, right? Like yeah. every day we could just turn the tap on. We've got hot, cold water but we had to ration it and just coming back and being like, it's at our disposal. And not for not everybody it is. So we're really, really fortunate. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation today. And I'd like to thank my guests again today, uh, and, uh, Cameron and Anna McLean, AKA the Seedlings, who in January, 2020 this year, completed the world's toughest row, the Atlantic 
Ocean Challenge, raising awareness and over £28,000 for UN women. You can find out more about their project and row on their social media accounts and links below. Links to all the past and upcoming conversations on the Inside Story all online and can be found through social media and the website www.insidestory.show and the links below. To all those watching and listening, thank you all and see you next time for more conversations exploring life's big questions, human endeavor, culture, ideas and truth. I'm David Stratton Downs and this has been The Inside Story. <laughs>